it's simplest to think in terms of someone lying or just being sincere, but in fact, we have a whole range in between. So one scenario is that some champion becomes known as a visionary for having introduced this new visionary process. They oversaw the process and then they get promoted and whoever replaces them doesn't see the point of continuing. If you've got two options and you're finding it really hard to pick between them, that it probably doesn't matter so much. People hate states more, but they like they like this community of you know keynote speakers and op-ed writers and, and Davos men. Those people they like. That's just how humans have done most everything, everywhere, always. Today we're speaking with Robin Hansen. He's a professor of economics at George Mason University, the author of The Elephant in the Brain and The Age of M, and the writer of the blog Overcoming Bias. He's one of the leading experts in the field of prediction markets, an economic tool that uses a stock-like betting system to predict future outcomes. As you'll see, his ideas on self-deception, social change, institutions, and economic progress are top-notch. Before starting the show, I want to give listeners a brief audio essay on the nature of progress. The best way of framing this question is, how in the world do we get new things, or improve anything? This is one of the hottest questions in economics, so there are plenty of reliable answers and perspectives floating around, including those of today's guest. Before moving on, I'd like to remind you of the things that you can do to help out the show. We're not taking donations right now, so the best thing you can do, and which really only you can do, is to recommend it to a friend or a family member. You'd be surprised at how willing people are to take your recommendation, and it's a great way to help them find something more interesting and help us grow the show. You can also suggest new guests by either commenting giving us a review, or by sending an email to contact at fromthenew.world. As we'll discuss, the biggest differences in decision-making are typically the clearest to make. While the details of what the marginal tax rate should be, what licensing reforms to do, and what environmental protections are actually useful are all important, we're doing a pretty good job of those things. Not perfect, but decent. Honestly, any argument where all sides are motivated by rational, evidence-based, or pragmatically self-interested arguments are at a reasonable equilibrium. But you know by now that politics is far from the land of the reasonable. Government policies aren't set by careful, data-based arguments. They don't balance the values and practical circumstances of voters. Not even close. They aren't even just set by special interest groups which, while wielding outsized power, can at least be reasoned with. Instead, they're often set by emotionally manipulated voters and activists, who reject evidence which disproves their assumptions, or don't even try to make evidence-based claims in the first place. This includes social progressives in general, and racial conspiracy theorists in specific, who think that widespread unmeasured racism is across the United States. It includes QAnon, true anti-vaxxers, and the Stop the Steal enthusiasts, who are literally willing to go to the point of claiming that huge numbers of ballots were changed and secretly covered up. You might notice that these are fringe movements. 
The survey by Pew found only 6% of Americans are progressives of any sort, while 85% of the states are vaccinated. Nonetheless, these are organized blocks of activists, pseudo-journalists, donors, and politicians. Then, the answer to the progress studies question is quite obvious. What is getting in the way of economic progress? The primary obstructor is the convergence of politics and emotional manipulation. The problem is the narcissists, neurotics, and high empaths who fall for moral panics over and over again. In fact, this isn't just a cool technocratic problem where we can all win. The vast majority of us can win, but a small yet incredibly important faction of people will not consider anything other than holding their mentally ill preferences over everyone in society as a victory. In short, I'm sorry progress studies friends, but there is an enemy, and they are right there. Let me repeat that. The enemy of progress is emotional manipulation. It is speech norms that prefer emotional safety to truth. It is the governing by moral panic that prefers visceral reaction to cost-benefit analysis. It is the fake elites who are stupid and delusional rather than evil or corrupt. But this isn't just a problem outside, it's a problem on the inside. As we'll talk about, we choose to judge those who are evil worse than those who are stupid. What's the difference? Well, evil people want to reward themselves while knowing they're going to do a lot of damage, while stupid people think they're doing good, even if their actions are far, far worse. Let's imagine a bit of a crazy scenario from the movie Don't Look Up. A meteor is heading towards Earth, threatening the end of the world. Would you rather deal with evil or stupidity? The answer is obviously evil. Sure, they might extort you for a bit of cash, but in the end they will do whatever they can in order not to die. Stupid people, on the other hand, will destroy even themselves to serve their delusions. But we're culturally used to the idea of stupid people being forgiven, so let's give them a new name. The delusion class. If you don't think any of this translates to real life, consider the complete failure to do cost-benefit analysis under COVID. Instead, what we did was a combination of neurotic, paranoid reaction either to the virus itself or to the vaccine. Consider the willingness of a president to let a delusional fringe come all the way to violence in the capital, which by the way, was bad for him politically, worse than just conceding. Consider the decades of conspiracy theorizing practiced by social progressives, using anecdotes and outright lies to cast the problems of one race as a secretive plot by another, leading to riots causing billions of dollars in damage. The delusion class is not fictional, this is all real life. On the other hand, how much money does it really take to destroy their power? As Elon and Bezos have demonstrated, centers of communication, and therefore of activism, are fairly inexpensive compared to the problems they can create. Trump is the only one of those I mentioned who are remotely popular among the American people. The others are solely propped up by legacy power. In Russia, we call that oligarchy. So buy them out. Buy out the media companies, buy out the politicians by donating more to them so long as they reject social progressivism, anti-vax, and Trumpism. Yes, that last one might be a bit harder. If we can put together money to do large-scale regulatory reform, we can put together the money to do the obvious thing right in front of us. By the way, this doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate for pandemic prevention, higher legal immigration, cheap renewable energy, or any normal econ progress type ideas. 
Those are all great, and will be made easier, not harder, by removing the delusion class from power. Directly, parts of the delusion class will fight those ideas to the death, but indirectly, a rational balance of power favors, well, rational policies. Since the beginning of time, the delusional few have been willing to fight, while the rational majority have rarely been. That's their immemorial advantage. But rational thinking shows this is a fight that we can and will win. On to the interview. With Robin Hansen, we'll be discussing various ideas focused mainly around economics and politics. This includes his Twitter polls, prediction markets, the game theory around them, what happens if someone tries to manipulate prediction markets, his book The Elephant and the Brain and the Nature of Self-Deception, the timeline and event horizon of quote-unquote wokeness, the nature of economic progress, how elites communicate, the threat of global conformity, the nature of innovation, and institutional selection. The nice thing about speaking with economists is that they always have counterintuitive but evidence-backed ideas that you can discuss and come to reasonable agreements over. In this case, these topics are prediction markets and political economy in general. In any case, enjoy the show. So, I tend to dislike bio questions, and I've been thinking of getting some good alternatives. I think a great way is talking about your Twitter polls. So essentially you run these polls on Twitter, which at least to me, reveal a lot of counterintuitive results about how, uh, how we balance our values. So the first question is, what are your most interesting Twitter polls and what do they tell us? Well, uh, my most interesting ones aren't the easiest to explain. <laughs> so the most recent poll I did was I just realized that a lot of spy movies have somebody from a government saying to some ordinary citizen, hey, you need to help me with this. Won't you do the following thing? And I thought, well, how many people would actually do that? <laughs> so I asked, and the poll says, somebody privately shows you credentials of your government's main intelligence, i.e. spy agency. They say it's very important to your nations that you do a particular distasteful and usually immoral act, but you can't tell anyone. Do you do it? And the answer is yes, no, and I'm on the fence. So uh, you might think it's encouraging. Yes is only 6%, and no is 71.5%. But I'm on the fence is 22.5%. And that's the worrying 22.5%, because if somebody's in the business of asking people to do things, they're going to be pretty persuasive. <laughs> they're going to be charismatic. They're going to be good at it, okay? So I'm thinking a big fraction of that I'm on the fence people would end up doing it. And now we've got a quarter of the population who will take some random government authority and do something distasteful and immoral, presumably illegal, because some government official told them to. Isn't that kind of scary? Yeah, but... Actually, let's let's ask a question of the movies themselves, right? How many of these people, especially those who voted uh, just straight up no, how many people would negatively judge uh, the people in those spy movies who actually take the task, right? Right. In the spy movie, it's set up so that they are good people, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the propaganda is encouraging this sort of thing. Yeah, I think this this hovers around one of the 
major questions you try to answer, right? Which is uh, how, basically how and why people make decisions. I think this is a very good frame for people, especially people just starting off in the world, to kind of go about asking your, your uh, yourself those questions. But I guess what's important is like, why did you start thinking about this? And what were the kind of events that led up to this? So, I mean, the larger context is just that I have 55,000 plus Twitter followers. And it turns out that if I ask a random weird question like this, uh, I can get, in this case, I've got 908 votes so far and four hours left on the 24-hour poll. So I can get a pretty large sample. Now, they aren't representative of the U.S. or the world necessarily, but I still think uh, they're a good first cut. At, um, and so there's just a lot of ways I think about what do people like, what do people want to do, how do people choose, etc. Where I ask the question, I go, gee, I wonder what people would do. And having Twitter means I can just take a few seconds and write out the question and boom, I get answers. So uh, I've just been enjoying that the last few years, this ability to, you know, so of course, in previous years, you, you might think of such a thing and then you would have like thought, I wonder if I should do a research project where I take... <laughs> Right. Many thousands of dollars in many months to go answer this question, and you'd have to, you know, think your question was really important or worth bothering for that. And now, in the brave new world of Twitter, I can just ask several questions like that a day. Yeah, I think what's interesting is the the process of converting this kind of incomplete information into reasoning about the world, right? Because as you already said, it's not necessarily a representative sample. But you're looking at some kind of slice of the population. You're looking at what that, what direction or what information that gives you. And uh, what would you say is like your process in converting that into something that actually helps you to reason about the world? So um, a lot of the theories we might have about the world uh, just are pretty uncertain about what responses you'll get here. And they're uncertain over a pretty wide range. So just getting a ballpark answer is plenty good enough for updating your beliefs. Yeah. Uh, you don't need a very precise answer. So as you might know, like if you had a US representative sample poll, well, that's not representative of the world and not representative of all of history. You're still taking some particular slice. So I'm taking a slice of like people who follow me <laughs> and happen to be on Twitter enough to answer the poll. I mean, that's not a representative sample of everything else, but we almost never have representative samples of everything polls. So uh, if you, you know, the thing is maybe to compare some polls to others, they should be from the same sample. But if I get lots of polls from the same sample, I can compare them. So again, you know, most of our theories of human behavior uh, don't actually predict that people in different times and places do things that different. Right. And so uh, you're just trying to get the ballpark. So. Honestly, so this is a very important principle that um, when you're trying to understand human behavior, your first cut should be just trying to understand the typical average across space and time. Uh, try and understand how and why things have changed across time or why people are different in one place than another or maybe different at some age than another. Those are all interesting, but they're the, the next, the second set of questions to ask. The first question is just what are people doing and why? So. I, I'm surprised, but it turns out that there's a lot of very basic questions about what are people doing and why that we haven't actually had good answers to. And so just asking generically any group will give you a first cut. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I think in the current, uh, especially academic uh, environment, there's a lot of debate over uh, how and to what ends you should be asking questions, right? So there's uh, debate over what models should be used, what uh, methods are kind of more uh, quote unquote legitimate, uh, and this idea of essentially uh, how how quickly you should be willing to to reason to certain points, right? And I think one of the biggest questions that we face is like, how do we work off of incomplete information? How do we actually do some cost benefit analysis, say, when we're looking at government policy and uh, whether we can actually use those kind of maybe intuitions or those kind of leads that we get from a lot of these small sample points from a lot of these uh, emergent points and actually put them together into making a good decision. So the kind of work I do uh, is to take theory and data and try to match them. And this is actually remarkably rarely done. That is, usually in our world, theorists are people who take theoretical assumptions and work through their theoretical consequences by, say, with game theory and uh, other sorts of theoretical models. And empiricists are people who take some part of the world and they very systematically collect data about it. And the actual task to be done is to match those two, to figure out which theories match which data in order to select our best theories. Uh, now, when I do that task, I do refer, when possible, to very systematically collected data and very systematically worked out theory. But in fact, I find that those are pretty sparse. And so I quite often need to do pretty seat of the pants analysis of what roughly do I think a theory would predict, even though I don't have a formal game theory model of it. And I often just take observations from the world around me as data, even though nobody's done a formal statistical analysis of them. And if the pattern's strong enough, that's plenty good enough. So for example, years ago, I read this book called The Mating Mind by Geoffrey Miller. And uh, one of the datums in that book that struck me was people are more eager to talk than to listen. <laughs> and I immediately it was true. Of course, yes, around me and myself, people are more eager to talk than to listen. And that was a key datum for me to try to model and understand the key motives for conversation. But I didn't need a formal analysis of that datum. <laughs> it was strong and clear and not explained. <laughs> right. I think a lot of these situations, you have, uh, I think, a good metaphor uh, that someone I can't, I can't remember right now uh, said on Twitter was essentially that sometimes when you're when you're looking at say a wrestling match or something like that and you see their bones sticking out, you don't need to be a doctor to tell that they're uh, to tell that they're injured. So you have these scenarios where you have these incredibly big effects, uh, where even if you're maybe lacking a bit in rigor, you're lacking a bit in the specificity that you would like, you have uh, enough of a lead that I think in any kind of application to the real world, you would be able to make some pretty predictive guesses, right? So there's this old principle in decision analysis, which says that if you've got two options and you're finding it really hard to pick between them, that it probably doesn't matter so much. <laughs> the two options are probably close to each other. 
the important place to do decision analysis is where your analysis tells you there's a big difference between decisions, which means that it won't be as much work to figure out that one is better than the other. So uh, unfortunately, I think academia to a large degree is functions as an institution for credentialing impressiveness and allowing people to associate with credentialed impressiveness. And that means that people look for the hardest things they can find to do <laughs> and do those, even if the hard things aren't that much more useful or even any more useful than easy things. Uh, and so like, as we see in this you know, decision analysis, academic will try to take the difficult decisions that, you know, where the difference is small and they'll try to make a big complicated decision analysis model of them. And you'll be really impressed with how good they are at decision analysis to come up with that very complicated analysis on which that edges out that A is slightly better than B. But of course, three other people did papers where B was better than A and they'll continue to argue about it for a while. But the most valuable decision analysis is something where nobody's done any analysis and it's an important enough decision and you find that A is pretty clearly better than B. And that's the big news and that's valuable and that's typically more valuable to the world. So when I think about insights and ideas, I look for ones where upon being expressed or described, they're pretty persuasive. <laughs> and you don't necessarily need a lot of machinery and, and uh, support to convince people because a small amount will do. And that's good because that won't be disputed for decade after decade as different people come up with different variations to argue about it. Uh, you'll make a contribution and somebody will nod and accept it and they can go on from there and do the next thing. That's where most progress comes from, finding sort of things that people didn't notice or didn't even ask and then asking or, or noticing them and, and then making a pretty clear conclusion where you go, well, yeah, okay, pretty obviously this and let's go on. But that's not so impressive because you look at that and you go, well, anybody could have seen that. <laughs> In part, because when you make an argument really clear and you make a case really strongly, then it looks really easy. Right. I definitely see this happening in uh, academia. I'm, uh, I have a math background and I think certainly a lot of the time you have this experience where if you have a complicated solution to a problem, it's impressive for everyone. If you solve the exact same problem with three lines, uh, a, a, very, a very simple insight, <laughs> Uh, even though, let's say you are in a room with uh, with your friends or with your colleagues for uh, a couple hours, and they didn't uh, they didn't solve the problem either. You you come up with this insight, and and uh, in hindsight, everyone says, "Oh wow, this was this was so easy. This is so uh, <laughs> this this was such a right. trivial problem." So you don't uh, get credit for having found the. I mean, it's obviously finding the easy solution is a lot of work and impressive if you understand what's hard and what's easy, but that's right. harder to persuade a wider audience who doesn't know what's hard or easy. Yeah, I think this is maybe one of the main separators between uh, science and academia and science and industry, right? So if you, I've worked in uh, a few environments where we're adapting essentially uh, machine learning to uh, certain tasks. And I think a lot of the time people have this idea of uh, people are doing cutting-edge research, basically the same thing as academia, but on, uh, on say, like a very specified data set. And this isn't necessarily the case. Uh, a lot of the time, uh, a lot of the time, it's just using like very elementary methods. And I don't want to cast too broad of a brush. No. I'm sure there are people who are uh, doing exactly the former. But a lot of the time, you, you actually don't need that to solve the problem, right? And it actually like, performs, right. uh, performs worse. I think I did a tweet sometime in the last five years based on talking to somebody, I think, in your role, and I think you'll agree, but you, you can tell me if you don't, they said that most people in firms who think they want machine learning to solve a problem 
really just need to do regressions on cleaned up data. <laughs> they just really need to clean up their data set and do some simple regressions and that'll solve, that'll be what they need. And you know, they, they mostly want to do the fancy techniques because that's what everybody's talking about and makes them look fancy. Right. I, I don't think I've worked in something like that in, in my experience, but I've certainly, I, I certainly have friends who would, who would say something along those lines. I think especially, uh, especially if it's say like a, a very uh, longstanding institution, you get this, you get this all the time, right? Right. So, so what you mean about industry is like product oriented industry as opposed to research lab industry, because <laughs> research lab industry is actually pretty much part of academia and they have the same norms and goals and priorities there. Right, right. So on this point, I think uh, one of the things that you're, say, an expert in that you've uh, published a lot and spoken about is, uh, is a way to kind of bridge this gap, right, which is uh, prediction markets. So, so what are prediction markets and uh, what problems do they solve? So uh, the fundamental problem in a lot of our parts of the world is we have questions we want to answer, decisions we want to make, and we have some resources and we have people available who might be tempted to you know, help us if we spent some of our resources and we want to get them to help us answer our questions. And that's in essence what a lot of part of the world is. Uh, so of course we talk for other reasons. We entertain ourselves, we show off, we affiliate. So we do a lot of talking for other reasons, but certainly, you know, and if I'm in some sort of engineering or practical or goal oriented sense, the value of information is that it helps us make decisions. And so the question is, how can you get people to help? Now, you know, one mechanism is you find the people with the biggest degrees <laughs> associated with the category of topics that you are working on and then you pay them a fixed salary and you say your job is to help us and then they do something and whatever they do you try to use it somehow whether or not it's useful <laughs> however you can that that's one very standard approach right to, so these are like grants or, or or right or just hired researchers or whatever but i mean the key point is um your mechanism isn't very incentive compatible <laughs> or you haven't thought very carefully about how you're going to get them to actually pay attention to your problem as opposed to helping themselves in other ways. Uh, and we have a wide range of mechanisms in the world. You know, for example, you might go try to look up newspaper articles or magazine articles about your topic and read them. <laughs> or you might try to find books related to your topic. Or uh, you might, you know, hold an, an event and ask people to submit papers and present them at your event. What, you know, there's all sorts of ways you could try to help get people to help you sort of answer your questions. Um, and prediction markets are a particular way to answer questions that is especially effective and robust. Now, uh, for the simplest versions at least, one constraint is you will need to know the answers eventually and then the market will tell you the answer before eventually. <laughs> so right. you're going to use the eventual to pay off the bets. Uh, in order to uh, create incentives for people to bet accurately in order to tell you now what they will learn later. But a wide range of problems we're interested in are of that form. Like Yeah, let's just I, break this down a little bit uh, for the audience. So I'm sure most of the people listening to me will be at least a little bit familiar with sports betting. 
So this is a very good example of, say, uh, you have a bunch of teams, you have something that we'll, we'll eventually be sure of, uh, who was going to win the game, let's say, uh, in the most simple level. And so you know that in the future, at some point, the game will be done, the score will be on the scoreboard, and you'll be able to say, okay, this team beat the other team. Uh, now, we maybe want ahead of time, we want to be able to say, okay, well, uh, let's take some information, let's take a bunch of people who have uh, opinions, who have data, they, people are competing, they say, oh, this player is uh, playing well, oh, these statistics show that this team is going to win, well, uh, how, how do we tell uh, what's essentially just right. noise, what's not important, and what is going to be uh, actually good at predicting mm. the outcome? And so, so two subtle corrections. One is you can just offer the question and people don't actually have to have any data or thought about it yet. They just have to have the ability to do that. So right. once they see your question there, they could turn to the topic, go do a little reading, do a little thinking and then give you some insights. And so you don't necessarily need anybody to have thought about it so far. Uh, and the right. second minor correction is, in a simple betting market, some people win at the expense of those who lose. And so there isn't necessarily an aggregate temptation to participate. So what you can do is subsidize the betting market in a way that on average, the subsidies go to the people who improve the price, who made the price move from its initial place to its final better more accurate place and that's a direct way to pay people to answer your question right that makes a lot of sense so uh what exactly are the uses of these these uh betting markets how do we how do we actually use them to affect so, things that we're making i think people don't realize how wide the potential here is and how many things you can do with them. So if you thought about, say, an election, you might think, well, yes, there's these markets betting on the election. They bet on who will win. But I don't care so much about who will win. I want to know who should win. <laughs> I would like to know that as well. On, you know, a betting market who will win isn't quite the right thing. But it's actually not that hard to make betting markets on who should win if we can identify particular outcomes that are connected to you know, why you're voting. So we can create markets on, for example, the US presidential election. Uh, if the Republican wins versus if the Democrat wins, we can ask, uh, how will GDP be? How will lifespan be? How will COVID deaths be? How will foreign entanglements and wars be? How will international respect be? We, we can ask to predict stock prices, oil prices, uh, CO2 emissions, we can, whatever parameter that you are interested in and you say, I want the president who will reduce the war or who will increase lifespans or make us have more international respect, we can make markets specifically that say, you know, for each of the candidates, what is their likely outcome for, on each of those parameters? And so, for example, you could say, if I want the um, candidate who will make oil prices go down, well, we have a way to set up a market such that we get a price which is the expected oil price if the Republican wins and the expected oil price if the Democrat wins. And you can look at those two numbers, and if they're different, you can see the advice it's giving to you about who to vote for based on that outcome. Right. 
and I'm I know for sure that you've uh, been asked this question many times, but uh, this is probably the first time a lot of people in my audience would be hearing it. But what happens if someone tries to manipulate the market? What what happens if someone tries to uh, put a lot of money into betting on the wrong results? Okay, so for context, what we have in mind is there's a mechanism like we talked initially. It's like somebody wants to answer a question. They have some money. They're willing to pay some other people out there to work on their problem. And those other people do work on that problem. But now we're going to add a new participant in this process, somebody who's trying to influence the decision. Yes. Uh, and presumably not just by giving advice directly to the decision maker. They're trying to distort or manipulate other people's perceptions in order to influence this decision. People with agendas who want this decision to go their way. So uh, all of the familiar institutions we have would face that problem. So if you put together a committee or a conference or whatever you do, uh, these manipulators could use those other institutions to try to distort the final decision. And so manipulation is generically a problem with all institutions. As soon as there's a decision maker and somebody wants to influence the decision maker and then some people who will advise the decision maker, then of course this you know, wannabe influencer was going to go try to influence these advisors and maybe even become an advisor in order to push the decision they want. So the question is, among the many mechanisms we have, which are better at resisting manipulation? Right. And we might be okay with accepting there'll be some manipulation because all institutions are open to the possibility, uh, but we might still want to know which will do the best at resisting them. Now, it turns out that prediction markets do just about as well as you might possibly hope in resisting manipulation, which is a pretty surprising claim. So uh, we're going to imagine there's a market where there's some question and then there's some incentive to participate and then people are betting on that. And we want to compare that to the alternative situation where everything is the same except we add manipulators. We add people who are trying to influence this outcome. Now, um, we might usually expect that, you know, without the manipulators, we'll get some degree of accuracy for a certain amount of resources. <laughs> say, you know, on a zero to 100 scale, we'll get it within 5%, say, if we spent $100,000 or something, right? And now we might wonder, oh, when we add these manipulators, how much worse are they going to make our estimates? Maybe the error will go up to 7 or 10%. And that might be what you're thinking that you have to deal with. Like, okay, uh, um, it, the answer is going to get worse, but um, I'm still going to get something. And what else am I supposed to do? I can't, you know, unless I can identify and, and eliminate all the manipulators that I have to accept this problem, right? Well, it turns out with prediction markets, when you have the 5% accuracy with the no manipulators, and then you add manipulators, the accuracy goes up, not down. In fact, the 5% might go down to 3%, exactly because a manipulator has been added to the system. That's what happens in prediction markets. So that should be surprising to you, so I can explain. It definitely is. <laughs> explain why. So in ordinary financial markets, the simplest model of them is that there's two kinds of traders. One kind of trader is somebody who has some information or can get it, and they are trying to make a profit. So they're going to look at the price and ask, what does their information suggest about which direction the price should be changed? And then they're going to trade in that direction under the expectation that later on, people will realize eventually, and they will make a profit from that differential trade. 
moving the price up or down, depending on what their information suggests. That's a informed trader. However, uh, unless there's some other subsidies like we discussed, financial markets can't really exist with only those traders. They need also another kind of trader that we usually call a noise trader. They are just there for some other reason than having better information. For example, the stock market, they might be saving for retirement. So they put money into the stock market and later on they take it out because uh, they retire. So that's a noise trader. They are trading for some other reason than the information they have. And they are the ones the noise traders want to trade against. So if you're a noise, if you're an informed trader, I'm sorry, the informed traders want to trade against the noise traders. If you're an informed trader and you see that you have information suggesting the price should go up and you trade against somebody else who's also an informed trader, that means they have information suggesting the price should go down. You're canceling each other out. On average, you're not making a profit. Right. So uh, just to kind of reiterate, essentially, you have these two, uh, you have these two competing forces, right? You can think of them as kind of... Uh, well, they're not. Order. So in, in some sense, it's like sheep and wolves. <laughs> the wolves go where the sheep are. Uh, the sheep would be happy to go anywhere and they don't need the wolves, but they don't even want the wolves, but the wolves want to go where the sheep are. <laughs> so the informed traders are the wolves and the noise traders are the sheep. So in financial markets, typically the more sheep you have, the more wolves you attract, and then the more informed prices get. Sheep make prices more informed, i.e. add more noise and the price gets more accurate. You might think that's counterintuitive from other systems you're familiar with. You might usually think you add noise, all else equal, it's going to get worse. But here, the response to the noise is to put in more effort to profit from the noise, and so add more noise and it gets more accurate. So that's a basic, and that, that's true in our financial markets. Basically, you look at um, a market, say, on a president versus a Senate race in politics. The Senate race has fewer noise traders, so it has less accurate prices. If you look at a big stock price like Google compared to a small stock price like, I don't know, um, Costco, <laughs> then um, the big stock price will be more accurate because there's more people trading it for other reasons, and therefore the price, uh, more, noise tra more informed traders come in. Now, so to get back to manipulation, the, the last thing you just need to understand is that a manipulator is a noise trader, full stop. The reason they're there to trade is not because of information they have, they have some other reason to trade, i.e. they're trying to manipulate the price. Therefore, they are a noise trader. Therefore, their participation, when it's anticipated, induces more informed traders and the price gets more accurate. And in fact, this is what we see in the field and in the lab and in theory consistently, adding manipulators makes the prices more accurate. Right. So one thing that I've actually been confused on is that uh, you expect people to eventually lose money uh, via manipulation, right? Uh, and the, Yes, the manipulators will on average lose money. Right. Uh, so one question that I have is in a lot of these uh, conditional prediction markets, right? You have one where uh, the Democrat wins, one where the Republican wins. They're kind of double-ended. And uh, only one of these things gets measured, right? right. So at, yep. the, at the end of the day, uh, the Democrat or the Republican uh, gets elected. Uh, you can measure the outcomes. Uh, but what if someone tries to manipulate the end, uh, which they think, which after the manipulation becomes very unlikely to win out, right? So let's say someone thinks that uh, someone already has a very large advantage in the election. Uh, 
or in one of these cases where it's even uh, it's even more dependent on the market itself, right? Where uh, the choice that actually is made is even more dependent on the result of the market. Let's say someone puts a lot of money into manipulating the end that they hope to eventually tank and that they hope to eventually make it so that that choice isn't chosen and there's no way to evaluate it. Uh, how would the market play out in that case? So uh, if the decision is made independently of the market, that's the first case to think through, then as a option becomes less likely, then people have less incentive to trade on that option. So the key idea is you're going to make called off trades. You're going to make trades conditional on a decision being made. If the decision isn't being made, then all those trades will be as if nothing happened. And so your interest in making those trades is proportional to the chance that that will be the decision. So if you had, you know, in, in they say the presidential elections, if you have 10 candidates for president, then if we're betting on the consequence of the president, say for oil prices, then your interest in betting on any one candidate and in, in predicting what will oil prices be if that candidate becomes president, that's proportional to the chance that that candidate will become president. So when the chance is 5%, uh, you'll have you know, that dilution of incentive relative to if it was 100%. Uh, and so you will expect more attention and energy to go to the prices which have higher chances of being realized. But there'll still be some energy going to the others. It'll just be they'll need a larger mispricing before they think they see a profit opportunity to go bother to think about it and, and to influence it. So we should expect larger errors in estimates about the consequences of unlikely choices. Now, uh, that means, of course, if you have a large error in something, that large error could suggest that that's a really good decision to make. <laughs> so it, now if we move to the case where the choice is influenced by the market, now we've got a more complicated scenario where there's some tentative initial you know, chance of each decision, which is connected to the estimate of the consequences of each decision. But if you have some error in the consequence of a decision, it may happen to suggest that decision is especially good, in which case the decision maker may become more likely to pick that decision, in which case now the market will pay more attention to that decision and then presumably reduce the error in the prices. So uh, now the current candidates that are seem, seem to be the best options, those, those estimates will be more accurate. And so, uh, you know, there's less of a problem in picking the second best choice versus the top choice among the two best choices because those two estimates will be pretty accurate. Uh, but of course you still might make a mistake, but as we said before, when two things are nearly the same, it doesn't that much matter which one you pick, so that's not so much of a problem. The biggest problem would be from an option that you are not picking, which you have underestimated. That's it's right. quality, right? If you look at something and say, oh, that's, that looks terrible, and everybody looks at it and says, that looks terrible, and now uh, it seems very unlikely to be picked, and so nobody gives it a second glance, then it will continue to look terrible and then it won't be chosen. 
Uh, but this does give participants the incentive to go look for neglected uh, options. So if you find an option that seems to have a very unlikely chance of happening and a very low evaluation, and you think about it and you go, well, that's a lot better than I thought. Well, now you have the strategy of, oh, well, let's bid up that price. And let's tell everybody this looks better than you thought. And now, once the price is up, they will take a more careful look. Now it's more plausible that will be the thing chosen and they will evaluate your judgment. Now, of course, probably usually you're wrong. <laughs> usually they say, no, that still is bad. <laughs> and here's why. And then you realize, oh, oops, I made a mistake. And, you know, then you, you lose on your venture. But sometimes you'll be right. You'll be right that this was a neglected option. And then um, it will rise up and be more likely to be chosen. So all of this works fine as long as, um, well, for, certainly if the decision is random <laughs> or random with respect to the market, that is, if, if the decision is exogenous. Yeah, uncorrelated. Market, right. Then uh, there's really no problem whatsoever. Uh, right. The, the main problem can be if you, uh, you know, when there's more of a connection. And now one of the biases you could see that people have pointed out is, say, among the options, you uh, find that you know more about A than B. <laughs> okay? Right. Well, then you'll want to push the market toward picking A because you have information about A. <laughs> so the more that you can in, you know, get people to pick A, then uh, the more that your information will be get paid for because you have information about A. Uh, whereas if you had information about B, you'd want them to pick B because now they're paying for information about B. Now, you know, if you were a monopolist, i.e. the only person who traded on A, then you could do more malicious things about, you know, trying to trick everybody into thinking A is great. If you're facing competition where there's lots of other people who can knock you down and say, no, that's not right, that's more like the case of the manipulation where your attempt to manipulate would be countered by other people eager to win against your manipulation. So uh, now the safest thing to do, uh, if you're really worried, would be, say, have a 1% chance of doing the decision randomly, and now have the markets all be conditional on that 1% chance. <laughs> that is, have the markets be, if we choose A and it happens to be chosen randomly, then what's the outcome? Uh, or a market, if we choose B and it happens to be chosen randomly, what's the outcome? And compare all the outcomes under the condition that it's chosen randomly and it's that random outcome that's chosen. Those market prices will be good, reliable estimates of the consequence of the choice you make if it's not made randomly, at least if the choice to make it randomly is made randomly. So 1% of the time you randomly say, okay, now we're going to make the choice randomly. And then you do make that choice randomly. And um, then, you know, it's not a problem. Right. Now, you know, you might think, well, it'll discourage the incentive of the traders because only 1% of the time are their trades realized and you're asking them to take on more risk and that is a cost. So, you know, against that scenario, you could say, well, let's just move closer to letting it be influential, but let's always have some chance of every option being picked. So if you have a very deterministic rule whereby you pick an object, pick an option when it absolutely has the you know, highest estimate, then you can have more problems with the games. So just as long as the speculators aren't sure of which option you'll pick, you can still have decent incentives for the other options. So, so for example, in the presidential markets, you might worry, well, the chance 
of a, one candidate being elected might depend on other things that will cause the oil price to go up or down. So I said, you know, we're going to have a market in what will be the oil prices if this candidate is elected. And that's imagining into the scenario that the president causes the oil prices. But you might think, what if some underlying force causes both the oil prices and the president? Now, uh, these market prices won't be necessarily reflecting what will the cause uh, you know, of the president have as an effect on the oil prices. So under that if you have those concerns, one simple solution is to condition these markets on whether the election is very close. Right. That is, or... if, the, if the election is within 1%, then which candidate wins is going to be pretty random. Uh, right. And so it'll, it's as if you were picking this you know, 1% chance of making the decision randomly. That's pretty much what you're doing when you're conditioning on the election being very close. Right. Or in general, I don't necess necessarily see that as completely a flaw. Because those correlations are kind of baked into it, right? If you have a prediction market, you assume that's the information people are operating off of. So they're not actually like well, they're not actually I mean, like making a mistake here, right? The, I mean, once you realize how most actual decision making happens, you realize <laughs> this is a ubiquitous problem in all the other mechanisms we use for making decision making. Yes. Uh, you know, your committees or your advisors, whatever they have, they also have problems disentangling the direction of causation in their advice. And so whatever incentives you're giving them to make good decisions, they can also be polluted by these problems. So uh, it's not to say these aren't problems, but it's not at all you know, clear that the prediction markets have a worse issue of the problem than the other things you might do instead. Yeah, I would completely agree on that. Uh, as I understand it, you've uh, worked with uh, DARPA for the audience that's the Defense Advanced Research Productions Agency, which doesn't just fund military stuff, but a ton of tech projects, a ton of internet projects. I certainly know people who've been funded by them. And uh, you had a fairly interesting experience there. So uh, tell me about what you did with DARPA and uh, how it went. Well, uh, around in 1999 or 2000, uh, DARPA initiated a project where they said, we've heard about these prediction markets being useful for things. Show us them being useful for some military application because DARPA is about defense. And so they did a call for proposals and I was part of a team that bid on that. And we bid on creating um, betting markets about geopolitical events in the Middle East. And we had proposed at the time to pioneer combinatorial prediction markets, which would allow you to talk about a, a range of if this country did that and we did this policy, then what would these other outcomes be to talk about, you know, a complicated set of interdependent events in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, we among we were one of two teams that won that contract. And so we began to set up our markets and then uh, we were ready to start beta testing, i.e. to have an, an initial small set of users to start using the markets. And we put out a call for beta testers asking people to come participate. And that was the summer of 2003. Uh, and at that point, uh, there was a press conference by two senators uh, on a Monday morning when it so happens, probably not coincidentally, that the DARPA, DARPA PR person was out of town and unavailable, <laughs> where they accused DARPA of funding betting markets in terrorist attacks. So 
our markets were planned to be, again, geopolitical events in the Middle East. Uh, each event, each country's economic events, uh, political events, military events, if they had them, um, that was going to be the topic of our markets. But the accusations we were going to make markets on terrorist attacks, and for evidence for that, they used some sort of hypothetical examples we had on our sample web screen when we were calling for participation. Uh, so uh, in addition to these geopolitical events, we thought, well, let's have some other miscellaneous events that don't fit into a more standard category. And one of those miscellaneous events was that the Arafat, the president of the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization at the time, would be assassinated. And another is that North Korea might send off a missile somewhere. And uh, this was the basis of claiming that we were going to make a market in terrorist attacks. And uh, between Monday morning when this press conference happened and Tuesday morning, the DARPA PR person was uh, unavailable, but there were hundreds of news articles about this terrible thing. And then Tuesday morning, the Secretary of Defense in front of Congress said that the project had been canceled. In that 24 hours, nobody asked us if the accusations were correct. Uh, and you can see that from the Secretary's Defense point of view, there's very little to be gained by uh, defending this thing. That is, it was a million dollar project, not a billion dollar project, so there wasn't going to be any special interest defending it. And uh, we were accused of violating a, a moral norm that nobody should bet on death. And there's an interesting phenomena that when people are accused of violating norms, they typically need to have an immediate response. If they say, I need to think about that, that doesn't look good. There's a sense in which norms are supposed to be automatic. You're not supposed to need to think about them. You're not supposed to need to calculate things. You're supposed to know immediately that it's a bad thing and you don't do it. So if the Department of Defense had said, well, we, we, we hear you, we need to look into this thing. You just, you just told us, then that would make them look bad. And so the obvious thing to do was just to immediately kill it and say, it's done. And so that's what they did. Uh, and again, we weren't planning on having a market on terrorist attacks, although that's not a crazy thing to do. Uh, the two main accusations that when people you know, complained about it, they didn't just complain, oh, this violates our moral norms. They tried to pick more consequential uh, things to complain about. One of them was manipulation, as you mentioned, that uh, the bad guys might manipulate our prices to mislead our prices. And the other thing is that we might be funding terrorist attacks. That is, people might do a terrorist attack in order to win bets in our market. So that second accusation would require that, of course, that our markets have a lot of money at stake. Right. So in fact, we were planning on having, you know, participants have 10 to $100 at stake in the market, which would not be enough to fund a terrorist attack anywhere. But nevertheless, um, again, people were mainly just looking for reasons to... Uh, to find complaints so that they could, you know, respond, invoke their moral norm against betting on death. Right. Those moral norms are certainly very interesting. And I think we're going to just stick a bookmark there and we're going to talk about that uh, uh, quite later uh, in the podcast when we talk about your book as well. Uh, but I think there is this trend that exists, particularly in the U.S., where people just don't like betting markets for some reason. So you might have also heard about uh, this, uh, this website, this startup, uh, Polymarket, which is essentially right. um, a betting market that's just a general, uh, just a general normal betting market uh, related somewhat to crypto. 
And it was recently uh, banned in the U.S. It was banned to use uh, regular money uh, in uh, in this uh, in this uh, betting market. And this is actually quite unique if you just compare it to the rest of the world. There's uh, there's no such bans on even just like traditional uh, betting markets compared to the U.S. So do you have? Well, the U.S. Uh, has any... more bans, but but it is widely banned. So you know most betting when it's allowed is heavily regulated. Uh, sort of generic free betting on anything you want is not very common, uh, but there right. are some places that allow it more. So the, the, the first thing to step back and realize, uh, all the familiar mark, financial markets you know about, stock markets, commodity markets, insurance, etc., they were all illegal centuries ago under the right. generic ban on gambling. So humans have long just enjoyed gambling and their associates have often disapproved. And so most societies through history have limited or banned various kinds of gambling or made it very limited. And that was an obstacle to financial market innovation. That is, uh, financial markets were also banned indirectly by these bans on gambling. So it took a lot of work and time for uh, to generate consensus supporting allowing the exception for ordinary financial markets that I is uh, so to allow stock markets to allow commodity markets to allow options to allow insurance all of these things required substantial lobbying and you know trial and error to get people to accept the idea that oh that's not gambling because that has a useful purpose i mean it is gambling literally it remains gambling in, in the strict definition but we carve out an exception and we say oh, that's okay. And we, we still often regulate them substantially while in, under the rationale of, oh, we need to try to prevent gambling from happening. So this aversion to gambling is quite widespread. And so the problem is just, can we convince the world that there should be another exception? And I think that's interacting with the fact that we are just a lot more regulated than we were. So all, most societies have had some regulations, but in the last half century, our world has just gone regulation happy and just has a lot more regulations on everything, which makes it harder to try to create new things that, you know, initially seem like they, they are violating the rules, but, you know, try to prove themselves to get a, become an exception. Right. So uh, here I see one of one of those puzzles that I think that you're very interested in, which is that in, in many cases, I, I think that... Uh, these kind of situations where it's kind of betting or where it's like betting but actually productive possibly is more regulated than just like straight up gambling like it's easier to to go to vegas than to invest in a private company for example right you well vegas is quite regulated <laughs> yeah but it's still like comparatively easier like i i think that there is like th these regulations on gambling but at the same time, it seems like uh, there are many specific scenarios where that gambling is possibly more I mean, productive. But invest, it's investment is also heavily partial. regulated. So right, I mean, so right. as you may know, uh, if you want to solicit money from rich people or from businesses, uh, you are a lot fewer constrained. But if you want to solicit money from ordinary people in the public for your investment, you have to satisfy the constraints of a public investment, and that's right. heavily regulated. Yeah, so the question, or, or I guess you're maybe disagreeing with my framing, 
so my framing is that it's easier to uh, to bet on something like uh, Vegas or a lottery ticket or something like that than it is to invest in a private company uh, or do or say like these in these uh, conditional betting markets, these prediction markets, and that this this just doesn't make a lot of sense to me, right? And you have you do have regulations in normal gambling as well, but it, it's it's just fewer regulations, right? And I don't understand why there's fewer regulations there compared to where your expected return might actually be higher. So where is it you're seeing fewer regulations? So, so there are less regulations in just straight up gambling, uh, and there are more regulations in some of these investment scenarios or in some of these uh, prediction I mean, scenarios. I mean, it seems clear that straight up gambling is very heavily regulated, more heavily regulated than the others. That is more heavily regulated. Right. In the United States, certainly. Uh, so, you know, you can gamble, you have to go in person to a casino. <laughs> and, you know, who is allowed to offer a casino is limited, not just why geographically, but even in those places. Uh, and, you know, what kinds of things you can do there is regulated. And, and you know, lots of things are regulated. It's, very, it's quite heavily regulated. All right, so this is just a disagreement with the framing, I see. Um, yeah, there is a chance that I'm just wrong. Uh, I might not be, uh, this isn't a topic that I'm specific, uh, specifically as uh, educated in, but I think just from a consumer perspective, it's it's just easier to buy a kind of like straight up, uh, straight up like lottery ticket or something like that than it is to uh, do this kind of speculate or, or do this or, kind of like uh, prediction markets. So, right? so lottery tickets. I mean, lotteries are regulated heavily in the sense that pretty much only the state can offer lotteries. So right. they don't have a competitive market to offer different kind of lottery tickets. There's just the one lottery ticket you can buy that the state offers you, and therefore it, the range of products of lotteries that you can buy are limited by whatever the state chooses to offer, as are the prices they offer and, and the availability. So, lotteries are really quite very. They're you know. In a sense, when the government provides runs a whole industry, that's you know an extreme version of regulating that industry, right? Right. Okay. Like, I I think I see the problem in my my thinking here. Uh, I'm just uh, approaching it from a completely uh, consumer angle, whereas most of this regulation falls on the other end, right? So for lottery tickets, it's just um, it's just uh, as you said, controlled by the government. It's uh, not not an open market. And you have a lot of these regulations that just are kind of uh, right. are, are kind of uh, hidden behind a, a thin veil that I just that I just uh, have not been paying enough attention to. Well, if we're focused on innovation, then we're interested in how regulation blocks innovation. So that will have to be regarding what new products could, and services could be offered. So when the government runs an industry, that's a very strong right. limitation on what new products and services can be offered. Uh, even if customers are free to get the old products from the government. Right. Uh, yeah, I think I can, I, I can see this. I, I can see this just general uh, reasoning. I'll have to go back and definitely uh, give that a hard think. Uh, so how do we, how do we go from a world where, uh, where prediction markets in specific uh, are, um, are fairly heavily regulated to a world where they're less regulated, how do we uh, how do we change so, that policy? I, I'd like to question the framing in the sense of saying that we could actually adopt prediction markets within firms today without many legal barriers, but we don't. So that oh. in that context, the barrier is not law. 
So there are other barriers and they are in fact sort of the most immediate barriers to what would be the most immediate valuable thing to do next. So, okay, that's uh, interesting. What are those so, barriers? So, so let's make a key distinction here. So an ordinary betting market, say on a uh, sporting event, the main customer is the people betting themselves. Right. Whether they're willing to pay overhead and taxes in order to lose on average, in order to participate in the betting process. Yeah. The information is generated by their bets, but that's a side effect from the point of view of the customer. The customer wasn't trying to do that. That's just happens indirectly from what they do. What I'm most interested in is when a person wants information on a topic, they are a customer to buy information and they choose to spend money to buy information via a prediction market. That's a completely possible and even sometimes realized scenario. And that seems to me have much more potential for realizing a lot of value in society. So if you're a company, for example, you could have a project with a deadline and you might want to know, will your project made it, make its deadline? Or you might say, if we offered this product, how many sales would we get? Or if we put this person in front of this division, what will be the division statistics? Uh, there are a lot of important decisions that organizations make where they use various informal processes to collect information to decide, but a prediction market could be a more efficient, more systematic way for them to answer their questions. If they were to do that, the most straightforward thing to do would be to give their employees a certain betting market stake, say $100 in a market, and then say, go trade in this market and whatever you end up with, you can walk away with. You have, to do, you have to do some trades, so you can't just walk away with what we put in at the beginning, but we're encouraging you to go trade. And we'll even like look at your betting market record as some sign of you know, how your quality of an as an employee or how much you've contributed. We're going to say this is part of our doing business. We're going to ask our employees and perhaps other consultants that are associated with us to participate in these markets to advise us on these key decisions. That's something that's quite possible to do now and pretty much legal. That That is, it's not violating gambling laws if you stake the employees and then they walk away with their cash. For it to be gambling, the participants have to put in stake, get out stake, and have chance in between. That's the definition of gambling. Ah, so uh, why aren't these being implemented more widely? So that is the excellent question. <laughs> uh, we have had many experimental trials where people have tried them and we can say that in the trials uh, they are typically successful according to the metrics of cost and participation and uh, user satisfaction and more accurate information. They typically improve information relative to some baseline of what other sources you had. The participants are enjoying the process and feeling like they're being listened to. The cost is not excessive compared to the value being obtained. They consistently achieve those ends. Nevertheless, they don't last very long. That's interesting. So one scenario is that some champion becomes known as a visionary for having introduced this new visionary process. They oversaw the process and then they get promoted and whoever replaces them doesn't see the point of continuing. And 
often when you know I've consulted on these things, you can go into organization and the first thing I would ask is, what are your most important decisions? So that we can advise them and they usually go, oh, that would be too sensitive. Can we pick something else? So they're trying to pick something that's interesting enough and engaging for participants, but not causing too much disruption or controversy in its answers. Um, if we, let's look at the specific example of project deadlines. So there have been many organizations that have projects with deadlines where, of course, often they don't make the deadline. And that's often, even though, you know, repeated project meetings before the deadline said they would. And so it's, you know, a common failure mode. Now, uh, we've often introduced betting markets into situations like that and then allow people to anonymously bet on whether we'll make the deadline. And we quite often have a pretty dramatic difference between the project meetings assessment and the prediction markets assessment. The market says, no, you're not going to make the deadline. No way. And right. Course, and I think uh, the market is right. The market is proved right. And the other meetings were proved wrong. Yeah, and I think they uh, get it wrong in a one particularly specific way, right? There's a specific thing that people tell themselves. Well, so if you ask, did, did you want to know that as the project lead? It turns out the project leads go, well, no, I didn't really want to know that. <laughs> so if you're the project lead uh, and you have a project that might fail to make its deadline, the thing you ask yourself is, if I fail, what will my excuse be? And most everyone's favorite excuse is we were all going along fine. And then at the last minute, something came out of left field and knocked us flat. No one could ever, no one could see it coming. It's really rare. It'll never happen again. So let's just forget about it and not hold anybody responsible. That's what the project lead wants and what the project leads boss wants, who will also be held somewhat responsible. Now that works if you can get the project meetings to keep saying everything's going fine until the last minute when it fails. But it doesn't work so fine if the betting market said months ahead of time, you're not going to make the deadline. Then you can't say it came at the last minute and made us fail. So project leads would rather have a more believable excuse than actually get more advanced warning about failure. Even though, of course, advanced warning might have allowed them to try different things to change the project, the definitions, resources, or even to abandon the project, still, it'll look bad. Right. And that's, sorry, that's just an example of the more general phenomena, which is we think of, you know, managers in organizations as sort of scientific spreadsheet managers, right? They've got yes. a, a sheet of all their calculations in front of them for all the different options, and they're weighing these different calculations in order to make the best decision. That's the way they present themselves. And according to that presentation, they should be eager for any bit of information that helped them update their spreadsheet in order to get the most accurate decisions. The truth of the matter is managers are politicians to a larger degree than they'd like to admit. They put together alliances to support projects and they want those alliances to persist. So they want their projects to persist and they don't really want to have those projects be at the whim of some fluctuating estimate they can't control. There's going to be estimates that influence their projects. They want to control those estimates. They, For example, often you hire a consulting firm to do an analysis of something, and then you hint at them what answer you want to get. You don't usually want to just let them tell you whatever answer they come up with because that's out of your control, and it would then put your projects at risk for them having a disapproving analysis. So 
in general, managers are politicians. In general, they are not actually wanting to have their projects you know, be subject to fluctuating estimates. So they're in fact not actually that interested in you know, detailed information about which things are more likely to succeed than what, at least at the last minute information. Um, and therefore, uh, the very idea of prediction markets as giving them more accurate information is appealing to the myth that they present, but not to the truth of what they are. Right. So you have this very stunning quote, at least to me, uh, which on its face seems obvious, which is that uh, prediction markets make it very difficult to have hypocrisy. Uh, and I think this actually goes to something that is very important in our everyday lives, which is that uh, in many cases, hypocrisy can can make things easier, right? So uh, what are your thoughts on that? And why does that present a challenge? Why is this possibly a negative to some people? So imagine in the C-suite, i.e. the executive suite, you have executives and they vary in their personality and style and, and how knowledgeable about their various things. Let's imagine putting in that C-suite an executive who is very knowledgeable about the firm and very knowledgeable about all the different options and their consequences, but has no political savvy whatsoever. When they sit at the big meetings, they can't read the room. They can't figure out who, who has what sacred you know, oxes that don't want gourd, who has, who's, who's hinting in which directions about which things they want to hear, who, who is allied with who and who are retaliating against who. They don't see any of that stuff. All they hear is some topic being brought up. And when that topic is brought up, when it's their turn, they just say the absolute truth about what's likely to happen and what are the issues and what are the consequences. I think we all know, if we have enough life experience, that this executive will not last very long in the C-suite. That is, actual human groups will sort of, you know, fumble and, and move slowly toward making more effective decisions. But they will do that in the context of all sorts of politics, all sorts of human alliances and issues and things we want to hear and things we don't want to hear. That's just the nature of how humans interact with each other. And so this executive in the C-suite will be gone. They might become a trusted advisor speaking into the ear privately of somebody in the C-suite, but they would not be sitting in the room talking. So a prediction market is basically one of these autistic <laughs> advisors. They simply don't know when to shut up or who wants to hear what. You ask them a question and they just answer it as truthfully and honestly as they can. And so the thing to realize is that's a pretty unusual mode to be in for humans and it's not usually appreciated that much. Not in the C-suite, not in the work line at the bottom, not in charities, not in politics, not in government agencies, not in academia. Everyone gives lip service to we're trying to get better informed to make better decisions. And in general, on average, that is what happens slowly over time. But people are not very eager, open for, again, just an honest autist who just blabs whatever relevant truths come to their head in the context of the topic at hand. Right. That's, uh, that's certainly a common scenario for a lot of people, I think. Maybe this is a good uh, opportunity or a portal to uh, branch into uh, another area of your work before you come back, which is basically uh, why people are uh, quote unquote irrational, right? So you wrote a book about this called uh, The Elephant in the Brain. And so first of all, what is the elephant in the brain? 
and uh, what does it do? So uh, irrational isn't quite the right word to use. <laughs> right, right. But the idea is that when we do many of the things we do in our lives, we give reasons for why we do that thing. And many yes. of these reasons seem quite uncontroversial, uh, pretty obvious. And so we usually accept these reasons from others because they're the reason we give for ourselves. And we go on talking at least as if these were the reasons for what we do. So for example, we say we go to school to learn the material. We go to the hospital to get well. We vote in order to produce better outcomes for the nation. We give to charity so that people who are suffering don't have to suffer as much. We talk to exchange information uh, all the way down the list. We have a wide range of reasons we give for things. And as social scientists, we tend to take these things at face value as our you know, initial point for starting an analysis. So when we look at education, we try to study it. We say, well, okay, they're here to learn the material. What material is it? And who's learning how much? And how could they learn it faster? And then we just dive in, taking as given, basically, the thing people say about what they're trying to do. And, you know, after decades of exposure to and trying to think about such things, I have collected a wide range of puzzles that don't make so much sense from the point of view of these usual theories. And we're trying to ask how, oh, how could we make sense of these puzzles? And so the topic of our book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, which I co-author with Kevin Simler, uh, the thesis is that if you will just reconsider these basic assumptions about what things are for, you can make a lot of a sense about these puzzles. Uh, they don't look as strange anymore, but you just have to go back to basics and say, well, maybe school isn't about learning the material. Maybe hospitals aren't about getting better. Maybe charity isn't about making them suffer less. And of course, these are hypotheses that people sometimes mention. We, they aren't completely strange to us as hypotheses, but we usually hear them as associated with cynics who are thought of as disapproved, disaffected, you know, uh, grumbling losers who can't take the fact that uh, the world didn't love them as much as they wished. Okay. Uh, we were saying that may all be true about those cynics. Nevertheless, they're often right <laughs> about uh, what our actual motives are. Our motives are often less pretty than we like to put on, and then you can use that to understand a lot of things we do. Yeah, but I think you also get the scenario and you actually dive straight into the scenario where you can ask someone completely in private with no incentives tied to them, with no possible reason you can be incredibly close to them. There's no reason for them to deceive you. And yet they'll still talk about these kind of optimistic narratives and they, they really truly believe it. And uh, why is that 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 happens? So first let's notice there is a continuum here. It's simplest to think in terms of someone lying or just being sincere, but in fact, we have a whole range in between. And so we usually, when we're saying things that aren't entirely true or a little wishful or a little, you know, uh, looking good talking, we are varying degrees of awareness of that. Uh, and it varies among us as well. So some of us are just more intrinsically sincere about things we say and others are just more intrinsically always sort of trying to present a positive image that isn't quite what they think. And so, in fact, if you want to look at the underlying motives behind many of these things, it will be better to sort of pull people off in private, buy them a drink, 
and like prod them for their complaints <laughs> and their explanations. So for example, we're much better at explaining other people's behavior than our own. If you want to look for cynical or uh, less pretty explanations, you just have to ask people about their rivals and their opponents <laughs> and say, why do you think those people are doing that? And they are much better able to come up with other theories than they would attribute to themselves. And they're much better able to do it if they have years of experience and uh, knowledge about something and perhaps some resentment and some complaints. Uh, you can get these other explanations to come out of them. But the interesting thing is when we most officially talk through public statements, uh, you know, statement of purpose in your application or a graduation speech or a textbook on a topic or a politician's speech or proposal, in those very public forums, that's where we move to the most extreme sort of positive view of things. Uh, but if you go to the other forums, you will find the other more conflicting views that we are in fact endorsing in our book. So, but there is this continuum. And so the question is like, what causes this continuum? What causes this variation? Why aren't we fully aware and fully honest in all cases? So, the key idea is that your conscious mind, you like to think of it as if it's the president or king of your mind. It's overseeing this vast empire of the rest of your mind and telling them what to do and taking an input and reassigning people to different tasks and reassessing priorities. You're in charge making all these big decisions. And instead we ask you to say, well, you're not the president or the, you're the king, or the CEO. You are the press secretary. Your job isn't actually to make the decisions. Your job is to justify them, to make, to make them look good, or at least okay, to an audience. So when the US president, press secretary, speaks to the press about what the president is doing lately, the press secretary doesn't actually know they don't, aren't in all the meetings where all the big decisions are being made, but they don't need to be. For each thing the president does, they need to ask themselves, well, what's a good story about why they might be doing this and why that would be good for everyone and make them sort of safe from accusations. And that's what they do. And that's what you are doing. So humans are very social creatures and we have norms, i.e. rules about what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. And because we're so social and having norms, Norms are actually very important to how you live your life. That is, it's very important that you find a way to live your life to avoid accusations of norm violations and to be able to plant such accusations on your rivals. And it's so important that that's actually what your conscious mind, that's its job. That's what you're doing. So right. norms often are expressed in terms of motives. So if I hit you on purpose, that's a big norm violation. If I hit you accidentally, well, that can be okay. Don't do it again, don't make a pattern, but still accidental is okay, on purpose is not. So one of the main things we're doing when we're trying to explain our behavior to explain it's okay is to come up with a story for what our motives were for each thing we did. Why were we doing that and why was that okay? And that's what you're doing all the time. For everything you're doing, you're trying to come up with a story. If someone were to challenge me on this, if someone were to question me and say, that doesn't look very good. Why were you doing that? And suspect you of violating some norms, you would have a good story. No, I was doing it for this reason. 
and that's what your conscious mind is for, which means your conscious mind isn't actually supposed to know why you're really doing things. It's supposed to come up with this good story. Right. I think what's very interesting about this idea is that there are extremely positive and extremely negative corollaries. Uh, that is to say, things that are uh, equivalent in meaning, but emotionally sound completely uh, different, are extremely ex accepted or sound extremely uh, uncomfortable. So I would say one positive corollary is something like, uh, we like to make ourselves the hero of our own story. While one negative corollary is, we are constantly lying about our, ourselves uh, and we are uh, not even aware of it. And I really do want to make this point as clear as possible for my audience. I actually say in the uh, in the introduction, uh, I think you have this quote uh, when you're speaking with Sam Harris, where you're talking about uh, a 20-year-old who's been saying for a while, now, everybody's bullshitting. No one is telling the truth. Where can I find out what's really going on? And uh, I really do think that experience is what drew me to your work uh, in the first place. So uh, you have plenty of examples in the book to make this point, and I think a, a lot of them are uh, really powerful. So uh, first, you want to go over the the one with uh, with uh, the split brain. So the book is split into a first third that tr makes it plausible that humans might have many hidden motives. Right. And then the last two thirds goes over 10 different areas of life, arguing that in each area, hidden motives explain many of the puzzles that would otherwise not make sense. So uh, of course we didn't need that first third in the sense that you might've just thought it was plausible enough that we could just show you the hidden motives. But for many people, it helps to have this theoretical framing for which it would be believable or plausible. So part of that is to show you that we are often just unaware of our motives and that we would mistakenly attribute them if we didn't know more details. So we give some examples of animals where the if we were to do such a thing, we would give a different reason than apparently the actual reason of the animals. And then we also give concrete examples where people are actually just ignorant of their own motives. So uh, the split brain example is uh, a famous set of experience in the 1960s. One of the main persons got a Nobel Prize out of it. Uh, they don't do this anymore, thankfully. But uh, back then, they took people who had mental troubles and they took the two halves of their brain and they actually split them apart. They cut them and they cut the connection. And so these people are walking around with two brains in their head. These Each of these brains has one eye, one ear, controls one hand, one leg. One of the halves of the brains controls the mouth. And so they can talk to these two halves separately. For example, they could talk to one half and say, stand up. And then that half will use its arm and leg and try to start to stand up. And then the other half seeing that going on will try to go along and help and they will stand up. And then you can ask this person, so why did you stand up? Now you're gonna ask the other half of the brain. You told one brain to stand, one half of the brain stand up and then you ask the other half which controls the mouth well, why did you stand up and of course the truth is it doesn't know <laughs> you're talking to the other half of the brain and so that's what it should say if it understood the situation but the remarkable fact is that people don't say that they make up an excuse <laughs> whatever comes to their head the most plausible story so for example they might say oh i wanted to go get a coke because that might be a reason why they would stand up. 
And so, of course, we're not surprised that it's wrong, but what we're surprised is that it thinks it knows. And that's the key thing to notice about yourself. You think you know why you do most everything you do. You're quite ready with an explanation, even when you don't know. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't actually usually know, but it raises the question, how often do you know why you do things? Because if you didn't know, you'd still make something up. Right. I, I think another example that goes along uh, the same lines, this is also from your book. Uh, I wrote down this quote. I really do think it's a stunning quote. Uh, and so the setup is that a bunch of men are asked to pick the prettier of two pictures of women. And uh, the tester pulls a switcheroo. They hand them the one that they didn't choose, and they ask that person why to explain why they chose uh, right. that picture. And uh, this is not like split brain people. It's just like normal people. Right. And uh, here, here's the quote. So this is from uh, The Elephant in the Brain. Not only did a clear majority of participants fail to notice the switch, but after being given the wrong photograph, they often proceeded to give concrete and specific reasons for their choice. She looks like an aunt of mine, I, and she seems nicer than the other one. Or, she's radiant. I would have rather approached her at a bar than the other one. I like earrings. Even under the best conditions. Unlimited time to make the choice. Pairs of women with different hair colors or styles. Subjects realized they had been deceived only about a third of the time. So you have these scenarios where people are given, uh, given just exactly the opposite, the inverse of, of what they did, of uh, what their kind of expressed preference is, and they still, still go out of their way to explain this, uh, to explain this outcome. It suggests we feel a strong obligation to be able to explain what, what we've been doing and why. Right. Now, you, you might think at some point, well, it's none of your business what I'm doing and why. I don't have to justify it myself to you. You might say that. Apparently, you don't mean it because you really are devoting a big chunk of your mental energy all the time to making sure you've got a good justification. And you're quite ready to do that upon asked. Right. And then the last, the last uh, puzzle uh, that I want to over here is actually one that you alluded to earlier sorry uh the one about conversation so uh you might ask yourself uh why you want uh to engage in conversation and usually the explanation is something like i want information right you want to exchange information uh but uh as as you uh as you find out that isn't necessarily the case so what happens and why does it happen so uh, the structure of all of our chapters is to say, here's a behavior, what's our usual reasons we give, what are things that don't make so much sense from that point of view, and what's a better theory to explain it. So in conversation, if we say, look, when you, you know, order a pizza, when you tell the car wash how you want your car washed, you know, there's lots of contexts where we have very practical conversation. But then there are these other contexts where we are just chatting. <laughs> and talking without much in the way of very specific goals or agendas. And we do a lot of that. We do a lot of just talking. <laughs> and we can ask you, well, why are you talking? What are you getting out of that? Because you're not ordering a pizza or doing something very concrete. And then people will often like, you know, not have an answer or not really know what to say or as if, why should I need an answer? But if you push them for an answer, one of the most common answers would be, well, um, we're exchanging information. Um, 
I know things you don't, you know things I don't. If I tell you my things, you tell me your things. We walk away both knowing more than we started with. You learn useful things from talking and listening to people. That explanation, however, is somewhat at odds with some of the details of our conversation style. So first of all, if it was a trade of information, then I would be more eager to listen and less eager to talk because, uh, you know, talking is uh, where I'm giving out something and listening is where I'm getting it, and I'd rather get than give. Uh, I would also uh, keep track of debts and uh, amounts on both sides. I would say, I've told you three things so far. You haven't told me any. It's your turn. You need to catch up. And we might talk about what was most important to each other, what uh, had the most value in our lives and the most you know way it could influence decisions. But these don't happen. <laughs> So they call into question this idea that we're trading information. And so our alternative story is that we are showing off a mental backpack of tools and resources. So the game is supposed to be that we're not supposed to control the conversation. It's we're just supposed to go. We're not supposed to sort of directly pick it out and say, I want to talk about this. Let's talk about this. We're supposed to have it drift organically without much apparent influence. And wherever the conversation goes, we're each supposed to find something interesting and relevant to say. And that's the test of our backpack. Wherever the conversation goes, we can each have something interesting and relevant to say. Well, then that must be a good person to have around. When you actually needed to have a conversation about pizza or car washes, they would have something in their backpack about that too. And they would be a good ally. So we're trying to show off our potential as a good ally by showing off our mental backpack via somewhat random tests of what you got. Right. And I think this begins to shed a lot of light on not just the puzzles that we've uh, presented here, but also some of the puzzles that we've looked at already uh, with regards to prediction markets, with regards to politics. And I think this leads us to uh, the second half of your book, where you ask the question not only about uh, ourselves, about the implications to uh, how we deal with each other on a one-on-one -on -one level, but also uh, with our institutions. So in the broadest way possible, uh, what would you say is the influence of these types of deceptions and self-deceptions on the way our institutions function? So first of all, we have, say, media and politics where we are in academia, where we are basically following the same conversation norm and process. So in the media, you're supposed to talk about whatever everybody else is talking about, not change the subject. Same in academia, you're supposed to publish on whatever's in fashion. And we're not very interested in how useful the things you say are. We're more interested in how impressive they are. And people in all these contexts do follow the fashion of the topic and talk about whatever's impressive. So. Uh, this gives you a sense for the function of these institutions. Now, um, we might ask, well, could we change our institutions? Should we change our institutions for the better? And of course, that's a very valuable and useful activity, but this suggests that the problem is harder than you thought. So previously, if you said school is for learning the material, and uh, therefore, in order to improve schools, we need to find ways for people to learn more material faster. And many people have spent a long time doing exactly that. There are you know, many people who study education who do know exactly how to make more people learn more material faster. 
We know how to do that. And yet schools don't adopt those practices. <laughs> they don't seem very interested. Neither teachers nor students seem to care whether they're learning more material faster. Which is a problem from, of course, the usual theory, but it's also a problem from trying to reform school. So the way to think about this is to say, in every institution, there's the thing people pretend to want, and then there's the thing they really want. If these were the same, then you would just have to find a way to give more of it to them, and they would be all over it. They would be happily to grab the thing they want. If you have people who are starving for food and you give them food, they take the food and they're willing to pay you more for it uh, if it's more food. But if people aren't so eager for the nutrition of the food, they're trying to get something else, neither offering them a larger plate of more calories and proteins and vitamins won't necessarily get many customers if that's not the actual product that they were buying. If they wanted, for example, taste or variety or a story to tell from their food, you'll need to offer that in order to get customers. So in education, if people want to show off their ability and conscientiousness and smarts and conformity uh, as potential employees, then and they kind of know that at some level, then you offer them ways to learn more material faster and they may well shrug and say, yeah, so what? Because even though that's what they say they want, they kind of know it isn't what they really want. And so in order to reform something like education, you'll have to find a new alternative that does two things at once. It has to let them continue to pretend to want the thing they pretend to want. And it will have to actually give them more of the thing they actually want. That's not impossible, but it's a little harder. But the compensation, hopefully, is that if you can solve that harder problem, you will get actual take up and traction. So a common observation that's one of the things that started me off on this whole track is the observation that we economists and social scientists seem to know a lot of ways the world could be better, and people just don't seem to be interested. And we wonder, well, you know, in other areas of life, where say physics or computer science, where people want something and you find a way to give more of that to them, they actually are all over it. They buy it. They pay a lot of money. You can find a better, you know, low superconducting super material, you can find a lighter structural material, if you can find a better algorithm for sorting a number, a list of numbers. If you have one of these usual tasks that people are doing and you can find a more efficient way to do it, people pay a lot for those things. Yet for fundamental things like how we go to school or how we use doctors or how we vote, we can find big improvements and people don't seem to care. And this is our suggestion that the key problem is, well, you're giving them something they say they want, and it isn't what they really want, so why should they take it? Right. And I think this connects very deeply to possibly the biggest overlap between your work and the, the frame of the show, which is the question of why uh, civilizations and institutions decline. I think uh, the main question of the show really is how these uh, institutions organize themselves, how they uh, change over time, and what really uh, they're made of, right? And, right. Uh, so you're introducing a, a new key issue is, is change over time. So as I, said, as I said before, the first thing you need to analyze is just things that are constant across space and time, like what are people doing in hospitals, what are they doing in schools? Those are timeless and spaceless in a sense, like they're, they're just general questions. And that will have to be the prerequisite 
to theorizing about changes. If you don't know right. what the average is doing, you're not going to have much of a chance of figuring out what changes are doing. So, uh, but of course, it is interesting to ask what is changing and why. Uh, so, and you know, and the existence of you know a strong long-term history of civilizations rising and falling is you know the most disturbing evidence about our civilization saying well how could we escape this pattern and in the past civilizations rose and fall in the scope spatial scope of the region around them that they interacted a lot with civilizations could fall in one region and not fall in another region because they were pretty disconnected today we have a global civilization pretty tightly connected across the globe so if this civilization fall is the entire globe falling together. And that's much more disturbing because in the past, when one civilization would fall, its ruins could be recolonized by another civilization which hadn't fallen. And so they didn't have to rediscover everything from scratch to, to start up again. They could just take transplants from other civilizations. If our civilization collapses, there's more of an issue of how will it regrow without having to rediscover what was lost? Right. It's not only that you risk the burning of the Library of Alexandria, but all libraries of Alexandria everywhere. <laughs> right. Or all chip factories everywhere. Truly, truly terrifying. Or all automobile factories everywhere, right? I mean, then that means... now. I, I still think, you know, it's relatively unlikely for um, humanity to go extinct in such a scenario, but it's more likely than otherwise. <laughs> and you would don't, definitely don't like that scenario, so you'd want to prevent it. Um, and, you know, the time it would take even just to rediscover everything from scratch is short on cosmological times. Right. So I'm actually more worried about um, a sort of rot and lock-in than I am about a collapse. Yeah. So uh, I think we have similar models of how institutions uh, rot and decline, but uh, especially for the audience, go ahead and talk about uh, what your model is. Why, why do institutions rot? So uh, systems we know rot in general. <laughs> Uh, the most dramatic example is just large software systems. In that case, the bits do not rot. The code can be very reliably stayed the same. Nevertheless, as the environment changes and as the demands and needs change, and as people participating change, consistently, slowly over time, the system becomes more fragile with more interdependencies that make it harder to make changes to any one place without making simultaneous changes to many other places. They just become more rigid, less flexible, harder to change usefully, and therefore eventually we just throw them away wholesale and start over from scratch. And once you see that in software, you can see similar things in other rule systems like rules of companies. Companies tend to rot over time in terms of having a culture and set of rules that are slowly accumulating this sort of rot. Legal systems get more complicated, acquire more context dependence and detail on, and procedures. And uh, it seems to be a pretty general phenomenon. And it, that's plausibly part of why civilizations have rotted. So we do have a fair bit of data about past civilizations and what went wrong. 
And part of it seems to be that you had an initially very homogeneous and unified culture and group that was small and that was very well at policing itself. And as it grew, it sort of accumulated more veto players, <laughs> more places where somebody was focusing on their own interests and sort of had their thumb on some key uh, flow and could demand a share of it in order to allow things to f pass forward. Uh, more veto players basically accumulate to prevent useful change and to demand their cut. And that's a common process of civilization decline. Uh, and there are other th correlates we see. Uh, but again, I'm more worried about not declining but not rising either. <laughs> I'm more worried about some sort of lock-in where we all sort of continue at a modest level of performance, but we become less and less able to change, but we don't collapse. And a stagnation, die. if you will. Yes, indeed. Perhaps even a great one. <laughs> a, a very extensive and long-term one. And so uh, I think some cultural trends are at risk for uh, inducing this. So over the last half century or so, I think we've seen a remarkable degree of integration of elites around the world and a right. remarkable degree of homogeneity in policies and regulations around the world. So even though you might think that any one regulatory issue, uh, if one nation doesn't allow something, some other nation would, in fact, uh, they are such a strong correlation in their regulatory policies that they aren't allowed anywhere in the world. Right. So here's a question from out of left field. Uh, have you heard of Steve Jobs' idea of the uh, Bozo explosion? Uh, no. It sounds All like right. it should have an easy explanation, though, because it's got a cute little name. That usually goes together, right? <laughs> yes. So uh, Steve Jobs, everyone knows the founder of Apple, had this hiring philosophy. Uh, but it also extends to culture and customs, that uh, they're essentially A players and then there are B players, or quote-unquote bozos. And if you have a team of A players, they orient the hiring, the culture, and the customs around making things more competitive, around making things higher quality, and around holding each other accountable. Uh, but if you let bozos on the team, they will, first of all, hire people to make themselves feel good and to advantage themselves politically, and also to change the culture so that it's more difficult to have them being uh, held accountable. And uh, this, in his view, is how uh, companies or startups slowly grow from, or, well, not necessarily grow, but change from being their initial startup selves to eventually these uh, legacy companies that are uh, less productive. And I think that there's actually uh, an even stronger correlate to this model, which uh, maybe is my uh, most kind of well-known uh, piece of writing, uh, about uh, this uh, model of what I call the kind of midwit cycle, right? You have this, uh, you have this, this uh, self-reinforcing system where first you start off with uh, some uh, high-functioning company. You have an incentive to expand, to grow, and this requires. Uh, this is not my original idea, but this uh, 
I, I heard it from Balaji Srinivasan, I'm not sure it comes from somewhere else, but the most important thing goes from being having uh, iconoclastic people to having what he calls the bus number, right? What is the maximum number of people uh, who can be hit by a bus and your company will still survive? Uh, a little bit of a grim metaphor, but uh, essentially what this means is that you select for uh, increasing homogeneity. So you have this uh, increasing homogeneity and you get a pressure essentially for um, just less interesting people or even just less, uh, less uh, highly competent people. And what this creates is that it adds up with the uh, with this Steve Jobs phenomenon or with this phenomenon that Steve Jobs uh, described where I think this is exactly where it lines up with your model it becomes an increasing race towards conformity towards mediocrity towards essentially having this highly unequal rewards function where you're punished heavily from deviating from the standard and where you are not properly incentivizing uh, new or kind of contrarian innovation so i move the analysis up a level of abstraction. And I'd say, uh, if we just have a world of small firms, some of whom fall into a good state and then grow into being bigger ones, but then consistently fall back into a bad state as they get bigger or as a result of getting better or just randomly, then the dynamics of the world is that uh, as long as we have many small organizations competing, then sort of the overall level of quality can be maintained even as things consistently get worse for individual organizations because you'll keep repopulating them with new smaller ones that are better, right? So uh, the, the fundamental problem is when you no longer allow this larger scale competition <laughs> that allows this repopulation with better firms. So as we produce sort of global organizations which lock themselves in, and don't allow competition from smaller upstarts to replace them, then we will have this larger civilization decline where large organizations are just consistently getting worse, but they don't get replaced. That's the scenario I'm most worried about. And so that's about when do we have these large scale structures that can't be replaced. So one key issue is that, you know, in the past, we have mobs, but mobs are local. And so if one mob is bad, another mob somewhere else can be better and the mobs don't sort of all get worse. But once we have a world mob where elites around the world are all in the same mob, if that mob gets wor worse, it doesn't get replaced by some better mob. It just gets worse. Similarly, when we have regulation around the world and it's worse, nobody can defy the regulation and therefore we don't have a place that defies the regulation and shows that it's better and then other people say, oh, I guess we should change the regulation to be what this one regulation is like. We just, it all just gets worse. So this to me is the more fundamental problem when we have global scale coordination in organizations and they just don't face competition. Right. I think I agree with a lot of that analysis. I just want to uh, focus on one point that I kind of want to reject, which is that you use the idea of uh, elites, right? And uh, this is something that I've often, uh, often had a lot of conflict with conservative or uh, libertarian uh, people, which is that uh, I very much like the idea of elites, and I think it is a word that is used almost always incorrectly. So um, the idea abstract of elites is that we have someone who is uh, very competent, who has proven themselves to be able to uh, win out, who, ha who is possibly uh, uh, very, uh, uh, very successful in a given field, 
And often, most frequently, when this is used, particularly by those groups I mentioned before, but also in general, uh, it's it's used to describe something quite different, which is it's describe it's used to describe essentially an inheritor class. So let's just flush things out a little bit more. Uh, you you kind of okay. have two ways to you kind of have two ways to power, right? Uh, or you have two categories to power. You have uh, the construction of power, so uh, building a startup, say or perhaps even uh, starting a, a revolution a government, although that's not necessarily something I endorse, not something I endorse at all, I should say. Um, and then you have, uh, you have ways to inherit power. And this is not just uh, with regards to um, literal inheritance, like uh, my father died and now I have his castle, uh, but also with uh, political or social inheritance. So you get appointed CEO, not necessarily because you've uh, proven yourself, but because you have the right connections, you get um, put into uh, government power for similar reasons, and so on and so forth. And why I think it's so important to make these distinctions is that I tie this greater social erosion or this greater um, formation of uh, global mobs or larger mobs as directly tied to the attempts of inheritor class people to uh, to further entrench their um, inheritorness, or their, it, actually just to further entrench their power. Um, so the problem I have here is that a lot of problems we need actual elites, right? This is, I think, the thing that I disagree mm. with conservatives well, about is so that... Let, sorry, let me ahead. just uh, say what I mean by the word, and you may not disagree with that. <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Um, so what I have in mind is that, um, you know, in, in any small society, even like a firm or a club, uh, there is an inter intermixed process of gossip and status. Okay. So um, people gossip, but then people who are high status count more in the gossip. The, the consensus that's formed is influenced more by the people who are seen as high status. And one of the things people gossip about is who's high status. And so the gossip forms the status and the status, you know, selects the gossip. And that's just how most societies have always been. That is, there might be somebody formally in charge, but formal formal powers aren't the same as this gossip process. Sometimes, of course, the, for, the formal person in charge has more influence over the gossip and the gossip goes their way. Sometimes the gossip may disagree with a person in charge, uh, but the key process is there is some set of status. And when people hear gossip, they hear what different people say and they weigh that according to their status. And then they talk about who's high status. And so what I mean by elites are just the people high status in that process. That is, they are seen as counting more in gossip and the gossip sets that ranking of how much they're counted. So that's one kind of gossip and one kind of eliteness. And there are, of course, many other ways to talk about eliteness. But that's the kind that's relevant for gossip and the consensus that's formed from gossip, which is a powerful force in most societies, even in firms and clubs and churches, etc. And the, the key thing that's happened is we've formed this global community of gossip with global high-status people in that world. And those people go to Davos, those people show up at, you know, TED Talks. <laughs> those people go to the same events, the same parties, you know, and they form a consensus. And so, for example, at the beginning of COVID, there was this dramatic process whereby 
at the very beginning, the usual public health experts said their usual things. And then all of a sudden, all the usual world elites, in, in this sense, got together and started talking and talked fast and a lot. And they came to a consensus that differed from what the public health people had said. And they said, no, it needs to be this way. And then that's what everybody did. <laughs> the whole world right. together did the thing that those elites said. And that's, the key point is to notice the elites are different from the experts there. That is, the experts are people who have positions of authority and standard organizations who have trained in those things, etc. And they're elites in that sense. But by elites, I mean these people who talk a lot, who talk to each other and are deferred to a lot, including by the experts. So an, another an analog is when somebody wins a Nobel Prize, commonly the next thing they do is try to write op-eds. <laughs> That is, they're saying, I'm an expert, really good expert, so maybe I could be treated as an elite. <laughs> I'm going to take my, put my hand at being one of these talky people that people listen to, and it influences the talking consensus. So that's right. what I mean by elite. And again, I don't much care what the word is, but it's a distinctive process that needs a name for it. And it is very important in most, most organizations and most you know societies. And the unique thing is we are not having a world version of that. So when the world gets together and talks about something, what to do, then the whole world does that. And now that prevents a lot of variety and innovation uh, that if it goes against that consensus. Right. And I, I want to be clear, I wasn't necessarily uh, accusing you of misusing the term, but I think the word elite right now and why I take particular uh, problem with it is that it's almost a perfect scissor. So you are, are you uh, familiar with Scott Alexander's idea of a scissor? Um, I, I probably could use some rep from reminder. <laughs> yeah, and this would be good for the audience as well. Uh, essentially, a scissor is uh, a, an idea that that completely splits the population and usually close to around half and half. So uh, a good example of uh, a scissor might be, say, uh, the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case, where if you were someone paying attention to Sorry. conservative media, you would have uh, thought that uh, he is someone who uh, did nothing wrong, someone who is honorable, who is patrolling uh, for uh, the sake of his own community. And some of those ideas are wrong. Uh, and and uh, if you are someone who has a liberal media, then you would have the idea that he is... Um, uh, he is, quote-unquote, a white supremacist. There were uh, polls taken that showed some high percentage of Democratic voters who thought that he uh, shot and killed black people. So you have these other uh, misconceptions about him as well. So, so and, in general, when I pick words, I try to avoid sort of political potency or, or you know, tr triggering that sort of way. And I look for words that could be more neutral. I just didn't find one in this case. So if you have a suggestion for a word, I'm all ears. What would be a good word for these, I mean, like talky, you know, people who yeah, so talk a lot with each other. socialite might be a better term. But I, a socialite has a more specific connotation of a particular sort of elite heritage and, and association. So if you think about people at Davos, Davos man, is Davos man a socialite? Well, not exactly. I mean, a lot of them are, but they're, it's a different concept. Uh, you can all, you know, keynote speakers maybe, or, uh, you know, intellectuals. See, intellectuals isn't the right word either, right? Because um, a lot of these elite people, they're athletes and they're CEOs. And I mean, they aren't, many of them aren't intellectuals by, by their official role in society. But 
the key point is like, if you put them on a panel, they defer to each other to the degree they have some overall status that can be gained from many different sources. Uh, Actually, how about this? I'm not sure if this is a widely uh, used term. I'm sure someone has probably said the words before, but how about we call these, these groups of people the status class? Um, statusites? <laughs> I would be fine with statusites. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just want to avoid creating... Use it. Um, but I mean, you know, I, all, I, I am also reluctant to sort of just invent my own words because, uh, you know, that people don't usually pick up New and newly invented words, but if you if, if existing words just don't do well enough, then uh, sure. In fact, right now I'm tempted to use my power of the poll to pick four words here and put a poll with saying what should they be called. <laughs> that would be uh, that would be interesting indeed. Uh, but so, so we got two two options now: statusites and elites, and we just need you know our socialites, I guess, third. And so I just need another one, and I'm ready, ready to go for the uh, the poll. Yeah, I think I just have a particular problem with. Uh, the word elites based on uh, the kind of conversations that I have, I find it to be almost a perfect scissor across people who I interact with. So uh, just that problem, maybe it's maybe it's not as uh, right. widespread I mean, as I think. This term as I define it includes a lot on the left and the right, right? This, this isn't a left yeah. versus right split in terms of the, the, you know, these particular class of people, the, the Davos man or people on panels or people in, who write op-eds, etc. Uh, that could be it, right? The, the Davos man? Right, although that that doesn't quite connotate like the whole a larger world of such things. I mean, sort of that sort of he's, he's an exemplar, but he's not. You know, he, most people who are this have never gone to Davos. <laughs> That's true. This is this is a difficult task. Hmm, maybe we should set up a betting market on this. Well, well, first, we need options. That's the first key. Again, I, I I'll do a poll with four options. Give me four. <laughs> you know, but but uh, I'm happy to but. Statusites is also, I mean, it's almost there. It's, it's kind of awkward sounding. It doesn't roll off the tongue very well, but uh, look for, you know, I mean, we have a bunch, we must have lots of synonyms for big shots, right? I mean, you can, like the word big shot. Big shots be. isn't bad, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, so big shots, it, it more connotes power, but, you know, it does connote sort of awareness and like that people are aware of them or something. Yeah, so. Not, it's not so bad. Yeah, I think we can settle on big shots. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they don't... Oh, but anyway. But yeah, there's the idea, also is, the yeah, idea yeah, is to so identify also... this concept, right? And that the key thing is that we don't have competition so much for this thing anymore. And in some sense, this is a key axis. That is, around the world, if you look at variation in policy, a lot of the variation is the farther you are away from these big shots, the more you're willing to do things different. So, like... Rural, rural Guatemala <laughs> might defy this sort of global consensus on COVID because they're just far away from that, you know, strong consensus center. And uh, but the problem is these different people far away from center, they don't they aren't coordinating with each other so much. Right. Uh, they're right. sort of out in the periphery of the network of, of connections. And so they aren't going to be able to very strongly coordinate to oppose whatever the big shots um agree on in a, yeah. basically the main way they do it say we have black markets or just defiance or you know being hard to see right i think someone on twitter said uh to show how dominant the u.s still is even compared to say russia or china um just just draw a map of the countries in the world that offered asylum to snowden right 
And yeah. I, I mean, this is a few years in the past, but you, right. you could make a guess at which countries would do so uh, again. And you would, uh, I think you would see that there is still quite a kind of global, sure. um, global uh, hegemony. Right, right. And, you know, and there's, I mean, to me, the, the biggest problem is that um, over the coming centuries, we will, this will happen stronger and they will have many big wins. I think we have to yeah. grant that a stronger global hegemony and integrated global big shot culture, they will decrease war. They will coordinate for global warming. They will promote innovation. They will make you know fisheries work better. There are a lot of things that will go well because of this larger global coordination. And people will be proud of that. And they will like sort of the emotional sense of us all being part of a global community that solves problem together. I think sort of that's sort of a very ancient human thing. That is, human foragers, for a million years at least, we lived in small groups of roughly the size of 30. We only ever met, say, four other groups of like that in our whole lifetimes. Maybe 150 people we ever met in our lifetime. And... Uh, the way we did things is when there was an issue, we sat down and talked around the campfire and came to a consensus and then we did that and we enforced it. That's how humans live for a million years and I think it's deep in us to want to keep doing that and global governance gives us sort of that feeling again. The whole world Wait. sits around and talks and decides. So, so, so is the claim that the global government will be popular? Well, we don't even need a global government. You see, we have a global mob. And so what or, people, yeah. people have been focused on the global government for all this time and worrying about it and, and resisting it. And so we don't we, we have very limited weak forms of global government. But we have a pretty strong global mob, the global mob of big shots. And that's that's mainly what it will take. That is, again, like we did with COVID, all the big shots got together, talked a lot for a couple of weeks about what to do about COVID. They came to an agreement and then the whole world did it. Wait, I want to go back to, or maybe I reframed the question wrong, or maybe I phrased the question wrong, but do you think the global mob would be popular? The global mob is popular. Mobs I, are I always just, popular among the people among the people that are in them. I, I just don't point. see that at all. Mobs are popular. Or among the people that are in them, yes. But I, I think I'm much more concerned about like this kind of overreaction and this is not a new idea right you have like Nietzsche uh, here here is the here is the coldest of cold monsters here there are no peoples there are only states the coldest of all cold monsters so I think you have like this this trend around the world of that people actually really hate the global mob right people hate have these, states like, more but they like they like this community of you know keynote speakers and op-ed writers and, and Davos men those people they like, at least to the extent that you know, they, they can't coordinate to impose them much. So okay, there's no that, center there. That right? I agree with, but so so if you, I, you've read the uh, Martin Gurry's book, The uh, Revolt of the Public. Yes. Okay, and so his thesis is that you know movements in the last decade or two have resisted having a hierarchy and having leaders. And, and people who represent them so they can have a sense of egalitarian participation. But nevertheless, they agreed on what to do and they did it together and they really liked that. People in those movements really liked being part of a movement where they all kind of agreed on what to do and did it together and had a strong consensus. That's the sort of thing people like, really like. And that's, that's the key romance of revolution, if you think about it. <laughs> 
people like the I revolution think... before the new government takes over. They like the romance of all the people getting together and, and doing something together that they all want, even if it's very destructive. Okay, so let me try to get the get the line of reasoning right. So step one, people like these kind of mob style discussion slash decision making. And then that leads to people being in favor of this kind of global big shot mob type discussion decision making. Well, it's more just this is the natural human thing that humans did for a million years. It's the thing we recreate in any small-scale okay. community that isn't doesn't have some other structure. If you put a hundred random people together on an island, the first thing that happens is they form this com talking community that creates consensus, and that's how they make their first decisions. And then they might decide to create some formal organization after that. But for a while, still, this, this gossip will be the main thing in control, and the formal organization can't really defy it if it wants to stay in power. That's just how humans have done most everything everywhere always. And so the point is that okay, but it's always been that. within the scope of smaller organizations and parts of the world. But if we form that same structure at the global level, then we will no longer have sort of outside competition to, uh, to, to discipline it. Yeah, I, I think the main difference here is actually like one of like consequences, because I, I think you see as a big problem, and I agree that it's a problem, it's like a grievous problem of over over coordination. But I think, uh, but uh, I think that the thing that is likely to hit us first is this kind of populist reaction to the uh, to the global big shot class, right? I, I think that there is. Uh, a very high degree of ferment and dissatisfaction with uh, particularly du during COVID, but before as well with the global big shot class. I, I can agree there can be a lot of dissatisfaction, but the co conflict is pretty one-sided. <laughs> so, 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 okay, I see what you mean. I see so, what you mean. Like the United States, basically, um, you know, the, the elite cultural elites control academia, law, journalism, tech, finance, uh, and now even the military and medicine, uh, they have a pretty strong lock and consensus control in those major institutions of life. Congress, say, is more emphasizing rural areas, and the rural areas are more disaffected away from those elites, and so they will be able to sort of control Congress and the presidency and express their unhappiness in the way Trump, Trump expressed it. That will continue for many decades all around the world. <laughs> To the extent that people are unhappy with these elites and resent them, they will take control of sort of the populist institutions that they can take control of, i.e. elections or, or major candidates. But those will have limited influence on the world. Like even today, civil servants are largely controlled by the same cultural elites that uh, the populist president like Trump can't do much with. Trump wasn't able actually to make the government agencies toe his line very much. When they didn't like him, they, they could, you know, they, like when the FDA basically refused to uh, to uh, announce the results of the vaccine trials before the election because they didn't want to, you know, they were just able to get away with that. They did it and they got away with it. Those people stayed in office and they are still there. So I think I do want to go, go deeper on this question of what are exactly the consequences of this increasing... Uh, increasing homogeneity or this this decreasing competition. So let me make what one point, well, one point to frame it, which is, uh, so I study formal political theory, 
uh, which is usually of democracy. And a standard result in formal models of democracy is you get sort of a main axis of disagreement and sort of parties, say, equally split along this axis with roughly equal power on both sides. So that's a sort of common observation we might see in, say, the left, the right, the United States or other areas where you just consistently get uh, people converging on one main axis and then roughly splitting down the middle on that one axis. And there are plausible reasons why that would be a robust thing to happen. But notice that in, say, firms or towns or even cities and governorships in the United States, that's not how it goes. A far more common pattern at the smaller scale is there's just one dominant party that wins <laughs> and the other party doesn't. <laughs> and that is, in fact, a pretty stable situation in a lot of contexts, and that's how most ancient civilizations were, okay? So you have to say a plausible future scenario for something like the United States is that we switch to that. <laughs> One party just takes over and wins and then dominates. Uh, and the other sort of has symbolic opposition, but doesn't, you know, actually have that much power. Again, that's how most firms are. That's how most towns are, how most cities are, most clubs, churches. That's how most of them are. They are dominated by a single main coalition that just keeps winning. So right. that's a plausible future for the world as well. And and what does that do? What does that uh, either cut us off from or what does that, what problems does that create? Well, again, the key problem I think is lack of competition at the larger scale. Again, we talk about the rise and fall of nations, the rise and fall of empire, the rise and fall of firms or clubs. The key point is there's there are often consistent trends whereby things get bad as they get bigger and older, but that problem is fixed by older ones die, go away, replaced by younger ones. And so that can be you know long-term growth and development through that process of replacement. Whenever we get a thing that just locks in and won't change, then we have much more problems. So there's the classic example, of course, of Europe versus China for the Industrial Revolution. And a classic argument for Europe, why it happened there and not elsewhere, is Europe was permanently split among many different powers. They had a shared culture, but no one power took over. And so they had a lot of competition and innovation in that mix of uh, different powers. Whereas China, you had a single power take over. It could impose regulation that limited innovation in many areas. And therefore, it did not produce the Industrial Revolution. Right. And I think this actually ties into maybe some of your broader theories about politics, because I remember seeing uh, on Twitter the other day, you said that you think, uh, quote unquote, wokeness, whatever you think, uh, whatever we define that as, we, you can define it later, will peak after 2030. And that this was very different from the results of the poll uh, that you that you sent out. Uh, so, and also different from what I thought, I think that it, it would will peak like either uh, very soon or that it already has. So uh, why am I wrong about uh, where, where this movement will peak? So the main evidence that I would point to is seeing things behind the scenes about woke powers taking and exercising control in large areas of life. Uh, so I hear from finance people that they have to uh, be, be certified as in a sense, woke in order to be allowed to offer their investments. 
I hear tech people saying they can't work at tech firms unless they show sufficient loyalty to woke. I hear people in academia, uh, accreditation, uh, using that to, you know, decide whether high schools and colleges can be accredited. Uh, I, you know, I see just in charities, uh, charity organizations, uh, you know, having these uh, struggle sessions and, uh, you know, explicitly checking that everybody's loyal and making sure they do big symbolic things to show their loyalty to these things. I, I've Over the last year, I've seen in things I have personally been associated with, I've seen those things and at an increasing rate. And then when I ask other people, they've also seen such things. So it's not making the news, but there is really a lot of movement behind the scenes in big ways whereby this is growing and taking a lot of control of a lot of things. So that doesn't look at all like they're ready to sort of back off in a year. This is long-term planning, long-term um, choices. They've, they've been, they've, this is the culmination of many years of efforts. Uh, and they are digging in, entrenching for a long battle. Hmm, that's interesting. Because I think there's an alternative way of this, of viewing this, where it's just moral panic, right? So you could say that in the wake of uh, to in the wake of 9/11, uh, you had a lot of uh, motivation for companies to suddenly be very patriotic, right? And you might ask, well, why why specifically after 9/11? What specifically happened in corporations that would make uh, them uh, specifically uh, want to be more patriotic. Uh, I, I don't think everyone is just coming up with this. It's, it's like, oh, it's uh, 2002. This is a good year. I'm feeling patriotic today. No, it, it was because there was this kind of uh, wider social reaction, right? And so you get this very big swing in one direction or another based on uh, based on these events. Uh, and uh, I, I think that that way of thinking about these things would say that this is just one of many kind of moral panic type things and uh and eventually this will this will be gone as well well so 9-11 is a reaction to a very particular random disturbance of a large magnitude and so or i should the... yeah i should say that that one is not not a moral panic but uh this one is much more of like but basically there's a social process that creates accumulated positioning right but in order to believe that there was a temporary thing, you need some temporary random thing to happen that you'd believe was sort of an outlier that's going to fade away in its effect. Uh, that, you know, that's different from move movements that slowly accumulate and grow, where each event isn't a random event. It's the culmination of previous parts of the movement. And so, you know, as a movement gets bigger events, you expect even bigger ones if they're part of a growing effect. So, you know, I say, well, sure, 9-11 was this exogenous large event that produced a temporary fluctuation. But uh, the question is, what is the temporary fluctuation that you would attribute? I mean, say COVID doesn't really work, right? This was growing before COVID. It doesn't look like COVID is necessarily changing it very much. It's not really COVID-oriented. This isn't about COVID. COVID is the, certainly the biggest, most recent random fluctuation that you might attribute anything to. Right. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm actually probably more convinced towards this direction, at least compared to uh, what I was, where I was before. But again, what, so, what I, I think there really should be is just some good actual surveys of what's happening behind the scenes that aren't being reported because 
it, it does seem like the media is selectively not wanting to report on these things. That that is the when they reported on some things, there was a lot of ferment and that encouraged, say, Trump supporters, and they've learned, no, no, we don't want to, we don't want to say things that will encourage them, and so there's a lot of, you know, not lack of reporting on this stuff. Right. So the final line I thinking I want to uh, I want to go down is uh, for today at least is. Uh, how do we reverse or how do we uh, counter incentivize um, this, both this homogenization and uh, whatever movements might be connected to it? How do we uh, incentivize more competition and more um, and uh, disincentivize hegemony? Uh, it's very hard, but basically, um, so, so I went to an event um, where people were talking about, um, you know, innovation in education. <laughs> and uh, people were there, like some people who were like starting new colleges. You may have heard people trying to open new colleges. And they're saying basically, well, the existing colleges are too stuck in their ways and too woke or whatever. So we're going to make some new ones. And there was a, a guy there who made the plausible counter argument. He says, you don't get it you need to be retrenching and defending. This is not a time for the offense. Uh, that I is, see. The, uh, the, the, the power on the other side have already taken over the accreditation boards and they're already ready set to not accreditate your new schools. Uh, and you need to find ways to defend what you've got and not try to <laughs> go for it. So, so the simplest thing is to realize, just realize what you're up against here. Realize how big and oh, how strong a wave it's coming. And, you know... <laughs> try to find something to hold on <laughs> so the tidal wave doesn't wash you away. Um, that, that's unfortunately uh, where I think I have to come down. I have to say, uh, the, the, you know, we're at the beginning of what's going to be a much larger thing and it's going the wrong direction. And um, I, in the long run, I have lots of innovation things I want people to try, but I haven't got people to try them for decades anyway. So I suppose... <laughs> Sure, come and try my new things, but like from the more fundamental, larger thing, like ask yourself how to how to protect the downside here. Like, so, so think of you know, I guess I don't know, Canticle for Leibowitz, a famous science fiction novel. Civilization collapses, and a few people have saved a few remnants of civilization in some place that they hope to rebuild from. Like, what, what can you protect and save? Right. Um, could. Could the thing that ends up getting protected just be, um, I mean, you can have plenty of disagreements with how that country is being run, but uh, could it be something like Hungary or something like Poland where they might have um, possibly other problems, completely different problems uh, that, we, that we're concerned about, but that you would have the in, that you would have the um, desire to protect simply because it's different. Would that be one strategy? Certainly, like help on the margin, help and promote just things that are ver, ver, have variety in various ways, things that are away from the center in all sorts of directions. Uh, one of the long-term problems I actually see is uh, fertility decline, and honestly. The best scenario I can imagine to reverse fertility decline is some relatively insular high fertility culture arises. And that insularity is a big problem, but if you think 
without that insularity, it sort of, you know, gets absorbed by the larger culture and assimilates the larger culture's fertility values and habits, then I guess you're kind of expecting that there will be some insular counterculture that has high fertility and maybe like trying to promote that or be connected to it or part of it or something and or various attempts at that. Um, you know, I, I guess like, you know, you've read Asimov's Foundation series or seen that TV yes. series version of it, right? The story there is civilizations declining and you can't stop that, but maybe you can set up something for the next revival. Right. Uh, Mars, any, any, any worth it? Any good chance? That doesn't seem at all plausible to me. Th that is... Right, me um, as well. Well, I mean, I, there, obviously you can put some people on Mars, but per dollar spent, it's a crazy expense for the number of people that you... I mean, Mars isn't actually very independent from Earth. That is, if somebody on Earth yes. doesn't like what's happening on Mars, you can throw something at them and smash them pretty easy. Yeah, that, that's so, also the concern I have. So I would I would rather have sort of diverse subcultures and places on Earth, which sort of are under the radar, but uh, having different technologies and abilities and, um, you know, that are available to, to revive later. Yeah. Uh, let's try to maybe end this on a more positive note. Uh, what opportunities are available here for contrarians? I think... Uh, Peter Thiel would say that contrarians matter more than basically anyone else, since they're uh, the ones who create these kind of new dimensions for us to explore, uh, as he says, uh, right. go from zero to one. Uh, and sure. I think a situation that you have right now is that the more kind of uh, homogenized uh, a lot of these spaces are, the more, if you win, if you end up winning as a contrarian, the more those rewards increase, right? So how how should we go approaching this problem? And is there a way to inspire and empower these contrarians? So the more conformity there is and more conformity pressures there are, then the more marginal gains you get by defying them, if you can sustainably do so. So if, for example, you get tenure as a professor, then at that moment you can defy all academic conventions and pressures to just research whatever you think is interesting, regardless of how much other people think it's interesting. And there are many other places in the world where you have such slack or freedom once you pass a certain point where you can just do it your way. And so, uh, and then of course, the more conformist everybody else's research is, the more progress you can make with your alternative research in areas that are neglected. I would say that for the larger society, the biggest leverage things to do are uh, trials of innovations, that is, uh, new social institutions in particular, the main limitation is just small-scale trials of them. Uh, you know, forget, it's like, even we talked about prediction markets, the problem, main problem isn't trying to pass, change the laws about vetting. The main problem is just to get any small companies to do these small-scale trials of things that would be very valuable. And once you, once you get some small-scale successful trials, then of course you could get others to be envious and jealous to copy and, and spread them once you have concrete successes. And there are a lot of ideas that are promising to try at small scales that could then spread. And so that's to me is the, the obvious thing to recommend is if you're willing to be a contrarian, don't just write contrarian blog posts or twit tweets or, you know, contra contrarian screeds or podcasts uh, where you're just talking about how everybody should be contrarian. Just go, go do something. Pick a concrete thing and just try a concrete idea out differently. And, you know, there's plenty of ideas that are that are worth trying out concretely. But of course, you want to get as quickly as possible to a point where you get data, 
where you see some feedback about how it's going. Doesn't mean you completely reject it if the first date is negative, but that's where you get to the point of learning what else to try. So uh, yes, and then venture capital is of course does a lot of that, but there's a lot of things venture capital won't do because you know of the particular ways that you have intellectual property and kind of markets that exist. So um, there's also room for non-venture capital based trying something new. Right. Uh, I think that's actually a very hopeful place. And I do plan to be uh, doing some of those types of things in the in the very near future as well. Uh, with that, thank you so much for being here. This was an incredibly enjoyable conversation. And I really do hope to uh, invite you on very soon uh, to have even further discussions on some of these ideas. Happy to talk again. That was our podcast with Robin Hansen. We covered truly a wide range of topics, but somehow we still didn't have enough time to hash out the most important argument of all, at least in my opinion. That was, of course, whether our decline in progress was caused by a failure of institutional selection or global conformity. In a way, this is the best type of argument to have, since neither of us really disagree on the direction of the problem, but we disagree in terms of priority. That being said, this has made me rethink my approach to libertarianism and my approach to these kind of more uh, decentralization type movements. I think Robin really does make a convincing argument, and especially for the short and medium term, it does make a lot of sense to go with these types of approaches. I'm not quite sure about the same thing in the longer term though, because even while you've had either decentralization or centralization in various areas and sectors, you still have this underlying pattern. And not only that, the political effort required to achieve these two things, I think, at least in my view, don't differ nearly as much as he thinks. I'd really like to have him on again at some point in the future in order to just hash out these disagreements and really get into the nuance and data in terms of analyzing these two different paths moving forward. Other than that, it was a really enjoyable interview, and I'm glad to have had him on the show. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, then please, subscribe to the podcast for more episodes like this, and also, as I said already, please recommend it to your friends and family. This is something that you can have a lot of power over. And it really does matter in terms of what podcasts have an engaged audience who are really into the podcast, who want more people to find out about it, and what podcasts are just kind of floating by. And I would really appreciate uh, you helping make us more of the former. See you again for another great episode next time.